0: Yeats's Celtic Mysteries by Dr. Lucy Shepherd Calagira, Chapter 3, Dramatis Personae. 1. In planning and composing his Celtic mysteries, Yeats sought collaborators wherever he could find them, and in all his most important workers numbered only thirteen. Of these, some were visionaries or seers with whom Yeats worked, to obtain clairvoyant knowledge of the Celtic pantheon, and others either were simply mystical and visionary by nature, and were prime movers of the more general Celtic revival, of which Yeats's Celtic mysteries were but one expression. Some of Yeats's collaborators were well-known in political or literary circles in their own right. Others were unknown then, and remain so today. The Dramatis Persona of Yeats's Celtic Mysteries is a mixed bag of the famous and the obscure. This chapter attempts to sort out of the crowded and well-documented lives of Yeats's more famous fellow workers, Maud Gaughan, Florence Farr, Annie Horniman, William Sharp, parentheses, Fiona MacLeod, George Russell, parentheses, A.E., and famous only to occultists, Moyna and McGregor Mathers, that which pertains specifically to their involvement with Yates in the Celtic Mysteries. Of those not so famous, Golden Dawn initiates George Polexvin, Edward and Dorothea Hunter, Mary Briggs, Ada Waters, and W.F. Kirby, I have presented here what information is available concerning their activities in both the Golden Dawn and the Celtic Mysteries. So this might actually also be one of the only academic uh, studies that look seriously at all the available information of those lesser-known uh, G.D. adepts. 2. George Polexfin, 1839-1910, to 1910, was one of the greatest of influences on the young W.B. Yeats. As Yeats's maternal uncle, Polexfin provided at Sligo and Ross's Point places of peace and contentment away from the tension of London, much as Lady Gregory's Cooley Park was to do in later years. From the time of the Yates family's removal to London in 1887 to about March 1896, when Yates took rooms at 18 Woburn buildings, Thornhill in Sligo, was Yates's spiritual retreat and George Plexfin was the confidant of his boyish freaks and reveries. George Plexfin represented the end of a line of wealthy merchant ship owners his father, William, had been known for his courage, yet had been silent and removed from life. His detachment was a symptom of the general Polexvin strangeness which resulted in peculiarity or insanity. Both Susan Pilexfin Yates and her brother George were known for their low spirits, and Yeats remembered his uncle as a hypochondriac who sighed, quote, every 22nd of June over the shortening of the days. It's from Autobiographies. Yet the Polexin family was, as Norman Jaffers pointed out, regarded by J.B. Yeats to be the very stuff of poetry. Jaffers quoted him as having said of his poet son that, By marriage to a Pilexan, I have given a tongue to the sea cliffs. He was, of course, quite correct in his metaphor. For while the Yeatses were verbal, given much to talk and discussion, the Pilexans were silent, yet full of deep feeling. In his autobiography, Yeats said that his uncle was one of, in whom the sap of life seemed to be dried away, yet he had a mind full of pictures and of such imagination that he had learned to imitate the cries of the lapwing. Such a person was Yeats's first collaborator in the Celtic Mysteries. Yeats described in Hodos Cameleontos how he planned to obtain the rituals not deliberately like a poem but in the manner of scrying taught by McGregor Mathers at Forest Hill. And that's been one of the most interesting things for me as I've been making these Celtic mystery initiations functional, is to notice and integrate from both the knowledge of all of Yeats's poetry and the GDZ docs and formula, uh, and the source material provided by Yeats and his collaborators, something that is functional but also still reminiscent of that spiritual activity and uh, mode of invest- <laughs> imaginative investigation, as I like to think of it. Rudolf Steiner, of course, uh, considered, thought the imagination was miscategorized by us and should be considered a faculty or a sense as important as any other, especially in spiritual realms. <clears throat> he plunged into a labyrinth of images with the support of his uncle whose belief in the spiritual world was reinforced by his long association with Mary Battle, his servant from his youth, whose second sight was the equal of her primary vision. Their experiments in vision, though secret, were echoed by the visions and dreams of Mary Battle, coarsened or turned to caricature, an example of clairvoyant parallelism, too acute for mere coincidence. Together, Yeats and Plexven explored the symbols of Celtic heathendom, and honed their clairvoyant powers with which polexfin then in his fifties was the more amply endowed yeats supplied the techniques polexfin the talent from that on yeats reported we experimented continually and after a time i began to keep careful record autobiographies these records, the Celtic explorations, presented in Appendix 2, recount some of the earliest forays into the Celtic religion and Yeats's efforts to find that originating symbol which gives a nation unity of image. That Yeats was not successful in finding a unifying image is reflected in the results of his and Pilexifin's experiments, the rituals themselves. And indeed that's one of the tasks I've been struggling, of course, with is that unity of image um, from... 100 years of perspective and looking a lot at what was accomplished by Yeats's Celtic Mysteries. The the Celtic tiger and the revolution of Irish culture around the world is really evidently the result of Yeats's distinct attempts to change culture and even the world a 100 years ago. And you can see it. It, It's a real thing. Uh, Call it it correlation and not causation, if you will, but... (laughs) I don't think so. It was, it was certainly not inevitable that Celtic culture would have the... achieve the pinnacle of, of glory that it has in our world culture today were it not for Yeats. I think that is very fair to say. We might not have Enya or the Cranberries or any of these things without good old Willie. Their eclecticism finally became a handicap. Theirs was a too rich mixture of images... Yeats may have recognized this fatal flaw as a reason for the falling off in interest in his mysteries. In his autobiography he reflects, To that multiplicity of interest and opinion, of arts and sciences, which had driven me to conceive a unity of culture defined and evoked by unity of image, I had but added a multiplicity of images, and I was the more troubled because, the first excitement over, I had done nothing to rouse George Polexfin from the gloom and hypochondria always thickening about him. I was lost in that region a cabalistic manuscript shown me by McGregor Mathers had warned me of astray upon the path of the chameleon upon hodos chameleontos. I could say stuff about that, but um, it would uh, impinge upon a vow I still keep. Eventually, Polexfin's life became much entangled with the occult, and he gave his nights to astrology and ceremonial magic. He became a skillful astrologer, and the Celtic papers include an example of his efforts at divination by the tarot. He joined the Golden Dawn in December of 1893, taking Festina Lente as his motto. So, when we refer to Frater FL, that's George Plexfin, he his uncle. Because of his relative isolation in Sligo, Pilexfin borrowed the order manuscripts and copied them with care. He was unable to take an active part in the rebellion against Mathers, but he did take the rebels' side. Later, he followed Yeats in breaking away from Florence Farr's leadership. The importance that the occult society assumed in Pilexfin's otherwise narrow life is evidenced by a remark made by Yates in a letter to Lady Gregory dated 28 April 1900, referring to the difficulties with Mathers. I have had to go through this worry for the sake of old friends, and perhaps above all for my uncle's sake. If I had not, the whole system of teaching would have gone to rack, and this would have been a great grief to him and to others, whose whole religious life depends upon it. The letters of W.B. Yeats edited by Alan Wade, 1955. Some of the letters and correspondences and notes from Yeats were going to cover here are ones that have never been printed to this day elsewhere, uh, even after all this time. So that's really exciting and has given me tremendous insights into the whole history of uh, that period and the people involved, which led me to some realizations uh, to this day that a lot of people don't agree with me on. But uh, what can you say? You've got to uh, read new things and accumulate knowledge and draw your own conclusions sometimes, eh? In his monograph, The Yates Family and the Plexfins of Sligo, William M. Murphy reported that 24 hours before Plexfins' death on 26 September 1910, Yates' sister, Lily, heard the banshee wail. She found later in an upstairs room the objects that symbolized his life. There were his racing jacket and cap, all about in the room were pictures and photographs of racehorses and yearlings, and then the interests of his later years, books on astrology, symbolism and such. His Masonic orders all were there, and all perfect in, order, in, all in perfect order. The breakup of the Golden Dawn and the earlier falling off of work on the Mysteries must have been a great disappointment to the old man, without whose encouragement and support in a place of quiet beauty close to the mysterious influences of Gaeldom itself, Yeats would probably not have begun his Celtic explorations. Remembering those old friends of his youth, now dead, Yeats recalled George Polexfen's astrological talents and phlegmatic personality. And then I think of old George Polexfen in muscular youth well-known to Mayo men for horsemanship at meets or at race courses, that could have shown how purebred horses and solid men for all their passion live, but as the outrageous stars incline by opposition, square, and trine, having grown sluggish and contemplative. Three. Before I move on, actually, if anyone is interested in looking at the Esoteric Nerd Podcast, episode 95, you can hear about the damage that such things did to my own family, especially my lovely mother and sister, and uh, how tragic it can be that people can be so selfish and greedy as to destroy others' lives in the idea that they'll gain power or fame or secret knowledge. It's pretty disgusting, really. On January 1889, as Yeats related, Miss Modgon, 1865 to 1953, descended from a handsome cab, before the Yeats' home in Bedford Park and the troubling of his life began. It's from memoirs. Maud Gone was to be one of the most powerful instigators in his life and on his art, the creating of occult rituals included. Who has not read of this Irish Joan of Arc, the Dublin beauty who, as Yeats' own sister Elizabeth recorded, marched on to glory over the hearts of the Dublin youths a woman of statuesque appearance who traveled between Dublin and Paris surrounded by monkeys, a Great Dane, and cages of birds, making many converts to the Irish cause. Her story is well known, daughter of a dashing British officer garrisoned in Dublin, to whom she referred as Tommy in her autobiography. It's called Servant of the Queen, published in 1938. Maud and her sister kathleen were darlings of the dublin castle but the evictions of the irish peasants by absentee landlords and friendship with john o'leary converted her to ardent separatism when she met yeats she was twenty-two he twenty-three and by then she had absorbed in yeats's opinion a desire for power for its own sake from french boulangiste adventurers and journalists, of whom she had seen too much. If you want a really good romantic uh, representation of their relationship using astrology and other familiarity with the traditions of Western mysteries, look at Women of the Golden Dawn by my friend Mary Kay Greer. That set me on a path as a young teen, and and, uh, it was very trippy uh, to present at PantheaCon and have her in the lecture hall, listening for an hour and a half as I went over the Hermetic Order of Celtic Mysteries and uh, hang out with her thereafter and play music for her. That was really cool. Shout out to Mary Kay Greer, whom Lon Milo Duquette lauds as the best tarot reader in the world. She still does readings and is a lovely lady, so reach out to her if you want a good reading. The strength of her political views approached fanaticism. Even at this early stage of their relationship, Yeats sensed the conflict in their values, which he was nevertheless to try to overcome, either by changing her or by remaking himself. Note, um, here Yeats was no doubt referring to the French boulangist editor of La Patrie, Lucien Millevoy, with whom Maud had sworn a pact to the death in 1884 to free Ireland and alsace lorraine from foreign dominations. Milavoy fathered two of Maude's children, Georges, who died in childhood, and Isolt. Maude's romantic exploit was talked of in Dublin, but the idealistic and innocent Yeats swore that she would have told me if it were true. So she had kids and no one, everyone knew it, but Yeats didn't believe it. Ah, so lovesick. He said in his memoirs Yeats did, We were seeking two different things, she, some memorable action for final consecration of her youth, and I, after all, but to discover and communicate a state of being. Yeats first tried to interest Maud in states of being, seeking to draw her into his occult interests, forming plans that they would devote their lives to mystic truth, united in the quest, as were Nicholas Flamel, the alchemist, and his wife, Early in their acquaintance, Yeats had discovered that she possessed considerable clairvoyant powers and seemed to understand his spiritual philosophy. After a brief separation, Yeats received from her a letter about July 1891, in which she related a dream of her past life when she and Yeats had been brother and sister in Arabia, and had been sold into slavery. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been a better way for a woman to try and friend zone a guy by other than saying that in a past life they were brother and sister. <laughs> she had the impression of a long journey and miles of desert. Soon afterwards, Yates decided to free Maude of a specter which had haunted her since childhood. He decided to materialize a certain woman dressed in gray who seemed to. Yeats to be an evil, troubling spirit responsible for Maud's need for power and excitement. Uh, note, two letters from Yeats to George Russell show that Russell had a vision concerning Maud, which Yeats submitted to the Matherses for comment. In a letter date 15 November 1891, Yeats wrote, Your vision about her, Maud, has been curiously corroborated in all the main points by the Kabbalistic seership of Mrs. Mathers, helped out by Miss Gone's own clairvoyance. The story was worked out in greater great detail. A second letter dated only November 1891 gives the details of Mrs. Mather's vision. She had made Miss G. Gone a priestess of a, a temple in Tyre and connected her with someone who, she said, afterwards resembled me, though she was not quite certain. This man lived in the desert and had much the same story as yours, Except there was an episode, apparently later than anything you had arrived at, in which he helped me to escape from the temple. She afterwards went away by herself into the desert and died there. This was corroborated by a dream continually recurring with Miss G of journeying on and on in a desert. Evidently intrigued by even a dream relationship, Yeats must have set Russell to further divinations concerning Maud's dreams. I'll bet he did. Yates used symbols, according to the rules of his order, and enlisted the help of the Matherses. The apparition appeared indistinctly to Yates, but almost as if palpably present to Maud. Clairvoyant experiences were commonplace for Maud. She related many such in her autobiography. Among the most interesting was one that took place unknown to her at the time, while she was visiting Irish political prisoners. Her companion later related that she had told the prisoners, even some who had been sentenced to life in prison, when and in what order they would be released. Oh, I remember this. Later, her prophecies proved correct. That was actually quite a a thing. Um, I believe it was after the... Oh, what was it? Okay, yeah. Uh, Irish history has been a while since I was deep in it. Perhaps part of her occult ability was drug-induced. Yeats mentioned that she had acquired the habit, unlearned, afterwards with great difficulty. <laughs> I love the idea of, of getting off a drug, being called unlearning it. Of taking chloroform in order to sleep. Ah, well that was the 1800s for you. Maud herself related that drugs did queer things to her, which she could not understand, not making me ill, but separating my conscious from my unconscious self. As a result of drug-taking, her astral body would appear. She materialized to friends once during a concert at Albert Hall, another time in a boat crossing to France. She found these experiences, as well as those undertaken for purposes of experiment with Yeats, very exhausting with the further disadvantage that they took her away from work for Ireland's freedom. Yeah, it's the thing about drug use, it does tend to be exhausting. As a result, she renounced both drugs and psychic experimentation. For a time, however, Yeats was successful in persuading Maud to join him in organized occult studies. He took her to meetings of the theosophists whom she joined, always in the hope of gaining power to use for the great objective of her life. He also persuaded her to join the Golden Dawn. In a letter to George Russell, A.E., dated 15 November 1891, Yeats spoke of having seen Maude several times within the past few days and of having found an ally in her cousin. Note, her Golden Dawn motto, Per Ignum Ad Luchum is revealing. As a political firebrand, she passed through fire, but perhaps never really attained the light. He continued, tomorrow Miss Gone is to be initiated into the Golden Dawn, the G.D. The next day she goes to Paris, but I shall see her on her way through London a couple of weeks later. She promises to work at the Young Ireland League for me this winter. Go and see her when she gets to Dublin and keep her from forgetting me and occultism. Of the Golden Dawn experience itself, Maud related, he, Yeats, persuaded me also to seek initiation. I passed four initiations and learned a number of Hebrew words. Sounds about right. Thank God most orders these days have expanded their curriculums. Just is my two cents. But there also, as with the theosophists, was oppressed. I was oppressed by the drab appearance and mediocrity of my fellow mystics, Mrs. McGregor and Florence Farr, the actress, were exceptions. The Fratra and Sorore, who so kindly made me welcome among them, seemed to me the very essence of British middle class dullness. They all looked so incongruous in their cloaks and badges. Characteristically, she gave a political reason for leaving the Golden Dawn. Quote Perhaps the Golden Dawn was an esoteric side of Masonry, Freemasonry as we Irish know it is a British institution and has always been used politically to support the British Empire. I would have no connection with it even to learn its secrets. Oh, I do say. I feel for her. Note, another of Maud's, Maud's objections to the order was that its members were anti-war, whereas she was quite willing either to go to war with England or for England to go to war with some other party, thereby providing the Irish with a situation in which England would be especially vulnerable. And that's what happened, isn't it? More or less. First World War and Second World War. Let's not forget, Ma- Maud once with her husband, uh, McBride, would go to a coffee tables and just take a bunch of weapons and like, put them on the tables and all around them with their babies while feeding as uh, protests or statements of Irish revolutionary independence. If the Golden Dawn was too British for Maud, then Yeats would create for her and for himself a totally and unimpeachably Irish occult order, one to which she could grant her allegiance unhesitatingly. And there we have it. That's why this is all happening. To get laid. No, I'm joking. Maud was thus a moving force behind the Celtic mysteries. In her contribution to Stephen Gwynne's collection, William Butler Yeats' Essays in Tribute, Maud related how early in their friendship she and Yeats would take long walks in the Dublin mountains and amid the weird and tragic loveliness of Sligo's mountains and the mystery of its lakes. From this western magic, she continued, Yeats never escaped, for, it was part of him and turned his mind to mystic thought and to beauty, heart-rending in its intensity. The land of Ireland, we both felt, was powerfully alive and invisibly peopled, and whenever we grew despondent over the weakness of the national movement, we went to it for comfort. They felt that if they could make contact with the forces of the land itself, they would have the strength for freeing Ireland. One way they talked of doing this was with the Castle of Heroes. Quote, It was to be in the middle of a lake, a shrine of Irish tradition, where only those who had dedicated their lives to Ireland might penetrate. They were to be brought there in a painted boat across the lake and might only stay for short periods of rest and inspiration. They would have the castle built of native stone and decorated with the four jewels of the Tuadjadannan, the Leofal, the cauldron of the Daida, the Spear of Lu, and the Sword of Light, and a statue of Ireland if any artist could be found great enough to make one, which they doubted. Further, she stated, all trivialities were to be excluded from the castle of the heroes. In austere surroundings, those dedicated to Ireland might, through meditation, harmonize their individual effort with national endeavor, as Yeats himself had done. Though, as Maud said, the castle of heroes was to remain a Castle in the Air, Yeats would remark on the occasion of their last meeting before his death, Maud, we should have gone on with our castle of the heroes. We might still do it. That, that gives me chills. Fuck. In his early 20s, however, Yeats knew better. Nevertheless, out of their occult partnership grew the closest relationship he was to have with her. The spiritual marriage of 1898. Though Yeats longed to make Maud his own on a more physical level also, at least for a few months he experienced spiritual union with her as they talked about the Irish gods and heroes. The occult which Yeats found so fascinating Maud found distracting, but the Golden Dawn and Celtic mysteries were not his only schemes. Note, a similar rapprochement was to occur again in 1908-1909. Like the first mystical marriage, which followed her separation from Millivoy, the second took place soon after her separation from John McBride, whom she had married in 1903. The second mystical marriage consisted of great efforts on the parts of both to meet and become united on the astral plane, a union which they succeeded in bringing about several times. Astral sex, hey? Virginia Moore discussed the notes Maud made in a notebook concerning these experiences. Well, Gavin and Yvonne Frost's book, Astral Travel, certainly led me to my first astral sex. Yeah. What else are you going to do when you're a geeky, chubby, goth teen he enlisted Maud in plans for a national literary society, a plan in which there was much patriotism and more desire for a fair woman, as Yeats himself admitted, memoirs. She was to help with the society's efforts to establish lending libraries throughout Ireland to make available approved books of Irish literature. Maud was to give lectures, the proceeds of which would help to establish these country branches. She was perfect for the task, for, as Yeats said, she had her beauty and her eloquence, and enough money to travel. And who could place a limit upon her influence in those little country towns where life is so dull? In the end, Maud founded three of the seven branches which were finally established before the whole scheme came to grief because of political strife. Despite her success, however, Maud found the work as dull as the little country towns which she visited. She was sort of an aristocrat through and through. She sought more exciting work among evicted tenants. Well, not through and through, perhaps. (laughs) Neither the plan for Irish libraries nor the Celtic mysteries nor the work for secret mystical propaganda nor any of Yeats's schemes were sufficient to attract and sustain Maud's interest for very long. I I want to go back and look at Mary Kay Greer's book because in Women of the Golden Dawn, she she tells all these stories of, of these women but uses her massive astrology knowledge to do insights with progressed charts and, and events at the time. And it is very remarkable, the insights uh, you can get, and that Mary Greer does get. Again, shout out to the great and mighty Mary Greer, a living legend. She refused to become either the fiery hand of the intellectual movement or the high priestess, of Yeats's Celtic mysteries, but she was very influential during a most important period of his life while he dreamed of and planned a national religion. 4. Samuel Little Mathers, 1854-1918 to 1918. Note, under the influence of the Celtic Renaissance, Mathers later changed his name to MacGregor and induced his wife Mina Bergson Mathers to adopt Moyna as her name for the same reason. So anyone who likes to think that the uh, Celtic mysteries were a secondary component to the Golden Dawn, (laughs) there's some more uh, argument against that. Mathers was truly, as Yeats said, a figure of romance, autobiographies. When Yeats met him in the British Museum reading room where Mathers was engaged in copying manuscripts on magic, he had already published his translation of Knorr von Rosenroth's the Kabbalah Unveiled, 1887. He was one of the ruling chiefs of the Quasi-Masonic Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, and Master Mason. For those who don't know, a Master Mason is a third-degree Mason and has finished what's called the Blue Lodge, 33-degree uh, Masons or whatever. They continue on to additional things, York and Scottish Rites, I believe. I'm just, I just did the first degree, and then the British flag on the altar turned me off, so I never went back but my great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers were in it, so I made my grandma proud by starting that. They do say that as soon as you do one degree in masonry, though, they do consider you a full mason, but a full-full mason is a master mason. Anyway, if he was not a real mage, he certainly acted and looked the part. Yates described him at their first meeting as wearing a brown velveteen coat, being gaunt and athletic in build and resolute in demeanor. Although he was absurd and incredible by turns, he was a necessary extravagance, for he had carried farther than any one else a claim implicit in the Romantic movement from the time of Shelley and of Goethe. He looked indeed, like Faust might have looked, in his changeless, aged youth, and Yeats' credulous group wondered if he might not have met with some old alchemist who had given him the elixir of youth. (laughs) Awesome. Note for an excellent discussion of Mathers' far-reaching influence on Yates' life and work. See, Lawrence W. Fennelly, S.L. McGregor Mathers, and the fiction of W.B. Yeats, dissertation, the Florida State University, 1973. Yeah, that's one I've not been able to get my hands on. If anyone has it, uh, let me know. Mathers' occupation was that of a clerk, but he must have spent very little time so employed, as he was always penniless. He devoted himself instead to his two great passions, magic and the theory of war. <laughs> you would think he actually would have gone along really well with Maud Gon, hey? He believed himself to be himself born to command and nearly equal in occult wisdom and power to that old Jew, Ahasuerus. I don't know how to pronounce that. As Yeats put it. <laughs> in later years, his mind became unhinged and he developed a mania concerning his ancestry. Youp! Convinced that he was descended from kings, he assumed the title Comte de Glenstray, took to wearing Highland costumes and calling young men Lad, and once did a Highland sword dance in the streets of Paris. Just note, though, that tons of people were actually doing this back then. It was, like, really common. Sort of, like, uh, not incomparable to the New Age movement, where, you know, everyone's become Silver Ravenwolf and Starhawk and Frater R (laughs) C. No, that's not I'm throwing myself in there as a joke, but no, like it is an interesting comparison to the modern namings of human beings and the the resurgence of of chosen names coming out of adulthood and symbolic of adulthood and spiritual maturity, which I think is a really beautiful thing in our culture. So shout out to everyone who has many names during eighteen ninety four Mathers and his wife regularly spent one day a week shut up together, evoking, trying to influence. The Politics of the World, and Anakian magic is perfectly designed for that, in fact. His two order mottos, Sril Mohram," Royal is My Race, and Deo Duce Commite Ferro, God is My Guide, the Sword is My Companion, reflect both his Celticism and his militarism. Mather's world was peopled with phantoms, some of whom he called his teachers or secret chiefs. According to Mrs. Mathers, these astral instructors directed him to establish an esoteric school, which was to become the Golden Dawn. These teachers would materialize from time to time, appearing in crowds, the Bois de Boulogne, and once in an alley near their Paris residence, Mathers claimed to be able to distinguish them from living men by a certain tension in his heart when he saw them. In spite of the gradual disintegration of Mathers's personality, Yeats always found him gay and companionable and had great respect for his occult erudition if not his scholarship. It was in fact Mathers who introduced Yeats to the system of meditation which he called perhaps the intellectual chief influence on my life up to perhaps my 40th year. Not since John O'Leary had Yeats found another whose interests were so congenial to his own. By introducing Yeats to the Order of the Golden Dawn, Mathers provided the esoteric school for which Yeats had been searching. Soon after Yeats's initiation into the Golden Dawn, on 7th March 1890, at Moyna Bergson's studio at 17 Fitzroy Street in London, another Order initiate, Miss Annie Horniman, made possible the marriage of McGregor and Moyna by obtaining employment and lodging for the impecunious Mathers' At her father's museum near London, no doubt his duties were light. For Yeats said that Stent Lodge soon became the romantic focus for the first group of Golden Dawn initiates, which included Yeats, Florence Farr, Annie Horniman, and for a time Maud Gonne. It was here that the Matherses taught Yeats and other meditational techniques of inducing visions through the use of symbols—the very technique which was to be used to obtain material for Yeats's Celtic Mysteries. Note, Yeats described this occasion in his essay, Magic. The evoker of spirits and his beautiful wife received us in a little house, Stent Lodge, on the edge of some kind of garden or park belonging to an eccentric rich man, F.J. Horniman whose curiosities he arranged and dusted, and he made his evocation in a long room that had a raised place on the floor at one end a kind of a dais, but was furnished meagerly and cheaply, I sat with my acquaintance in the middle of the room, and the evoker of spirits on the dais and his wife between us and him, he held a wooden mace in his hand, and turning to a tablet of many-colored squares, With a number on each of the squares that stood near him on a chair, he repeated a form of words. Almost at once, my imagination began to move of itself and bring before me vivid images that, though never too vivid to be imagination, as I had always understood it, had yet a motion of their own, a life I could not change or shape. It's from Explorations and Introductions, I believe. You have to check me on that. The Essay on Magic, that's how you'll find it. Mathers' tenure at the Horniman Museum lasted approximately one year, when a disagreement between Mathers and F.J. Horniman terminated the arrangement. Annie Horniman, however, continued to subsidize the couple. If you don't know the history too well, that's a very key thing that uh, is worth noting and remembering when understanding everything that happens afterwards. In 1892, Mathers' occult teachings, teachers instructed him to transfer his center to Paris. You can see a note on that in the Kabbalah denudata. And in 1894, the Mathers' finally located on the Champs-de-Mars at Un Avenue des Their lodgings became a center for Celtic nationalists and occultists of every description. In 1894, Mathers and his wife founded the Ahathor Temple number 7 of the Order of the Golden Dawn in Paris. This, during this period, the Matherses were collaborating with Yeats on his Celtic mysteries. Yeats made many trips to Paris regarding these, and not least, to renew his contact with Maud Gonne and to keep her involved in his Celtic plans. In a letter to John O'Leary dated 7 February 1894, Yeats stated that he was on his way to Paris tonight to stay with the Matherses at One Avenue de Quesny, as some, if you want to pronounce it like an English speaker, One Avenue de Quesny. Though Yeats planned to visit Verlain and Mallarmé while in Paris, he had refused other introductions. For just now, I want a quiet dream with the Holy Kabbalah for Bible and nothing else, for I am tired. Tired. Note, Yeats was perhaps intentionally teasing O'Leary, who disapproved of Yeats' interest in both Magic and McGregor Mathers. When Yeats again visited the Matherses in Paris in December of 1896, they had moved to 87 Rue Mozart, Altil. Yeats found Mathers' mental state poor, and I was just in Rue Mozart uh, last year when uh, I was transferring from England to California and my bank account got hacked, stranded me in France for almost a month. Shout out to everyone who helped me survive and get me out of there, especially the ambassador of Prague to the Czech Republic. Thank you very much. I would have died for sure if it not for you. Quote um, on, uh, of Yeats' discovery of Mathers here, the breakup of his character that was soon to bring his expulsion from my order had begun. Interesting that Yates calls it my order at that point. Yeah, he, he's often downplayed in most, by most writers as a minor player who often say that he never even got into the inner order for some reason. That's commonly said by a lot of scholars. I don't know why. He's referring to it as his order, which uh, at that time, 5 equals 6 was the top grade, um, as it was in traditional orders like the one I was trained in, in my opinion. Um, but later on, they did create the other grades of six six five and 7.4, which he did go through with Falcon, but clearly he, he sees that it's his order because he was playing a major role. He was influential and in charge of a lot of things and um, a big part of Mather's expulsion, despite working with Mather's even after Mather's expulsion, which again had to do with funding from Horniman more than anything to do with anything else, especially that Crowley stuff had very little to do with the order breakup, if nothing at all. He was slowly demoralized by the Celtic movement, and Sir Walter Scott, I don't know why he was demoralized by Sir Walter Scott, but he drank much brandy, which he spoke of always as whiskey is spoken of in English-Scottish poetry. He was always expecting a universal war, and had made his wife learn ambulance work that they might join together some roving band. Uh, Like Nostradamus, I believe there's a lot of work showing um, Mathers and a few other members, they were having extreme visions of, to to even detailed extent, and there's a lot of reference to them having had these visions, but we don't have notes or the diaries of their visions, that really explicitly point out, like, extreme war, not just war-war, like, you could always expect there to be wars... But the First World War and the Second World War were not things people expected. They were things people feared but could not have imagined in advance, really. So the, the magicians of this time were having severe mania brought on perhaps by overwhelming visions. Imagine being in like 1896 and having a vision of the Holocaust. People who, soldiers lost their faith and never regained it, who went and cleared out those camps. So to be there and have a physical image uh, or a spiritual image where you might even feel like you're going through it would cause mania and uh, probably a bit too much brandy to be drunk, in my opinion. Anyway, still no excuse, really. One form which Mather's aberrations took was paranoia. Finding that control of the London temple was difficult, if not impossible, from Paris. In October of 1896, Mathers sent a manifesto to the London group demanding that all members sign an oath of submission to him. We cannot be sure that Annie Horn refused to sign, but in any case she was expelled by Mathers in December. (sighs) Since Yates was instrumental in gaining her reinstatement to the order... We may assume that he was in complete sympathy with her, yet he was able to continue to work with the Matherses on the Celtic Mysteries. A letter from Moyna Mathers to Yeats dated 16 March 1897 reported that MacGregor was thinking of making his new magazine, Isis, an organ for the cause. And that would be, of course, the cause of the Celtic Mysteries but also emphasize that nothing can be done until the most important part of the affair be accomplished, that of resurrecting the gods and the ceremonies, etc. SRMD, Smathers' Mathers' note, is going to work at this, but as you know, it may be a long and difficult business and not a thing to be hurried at all. Anything of the kind got up without the solid basis of truth we will not have to do with, neither will you, of course. And this was Mathers and Moina Mathers doing the rites of ISIS in France. Note, Professor Harper kindly allowed me to inspect this and other letters to be published in Richard J. finnerin George Mills Harper, and William M. Murphy's Letters to W.B. Yeats, Macmillan 1977. So this was unpublished at the time, but it is now. Hopefully they're all published now, but I, I know they aren't. Um... They had apparently interested Bailey, the publisher of Isis, to in the enterprise, for Mrs. Mathers noted that he was very anxious to communicate with you on the Celtic religious movement. He says that the whole nearly of the French press are ready to help in this matter. Yates was still working with the Matherses on the long and difficult business in 1989. Of course, the French, uh, being often opposed to the English, were very much support, supportive of Irish nationalistic movements. In a letter to George P. Russell, A.E., which is, a, is the pen name of George Russell, pseudonym, dated 27 March of that year, Yeats wrote that he was bound for Paris on the 14th of April to see the Mathers on Celtic Things. Letters, page 297 and no doubt to visit Modgon, whom he reported to Lady Gregory on 25th April, he had found ill with bronchitis. Despite illness, she was able to come to the Rue Mozart to see visions, and Yeats planned to stay buried in Celtic mythology for a couple of weeks more. In a postscript to this letter, Yeats told Lady Gregory that his host was a Celtic enthusiast who spends most of his day in Highland costume to the wonder of the neighbours. By late 1898, however, the evidence suggests that the Celtic mysteries had ceased to be a matter of prime concern for the Matherses. Moyna wrote to Yeats on 31st October, 1898, this is from Yeats' Golden Dawn, page 19, that they were trying to revive the cult of Isis, a project which was to involve them more and more, culminating in a public performance consisting of readings from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which Mathers had lately translated into French, invocations to Isis composed by Mathers and some Frenchmen, and dances choreographed by another friend. That's from *Sort of Wisdom, I believe. Moyna's letter stated that she was glad that Yeats was working on the Celtic, at the Celtic Revival, as apparently they were not, and apologized for not keeping in touch with Maud Gon. The fact that she wrote that letter on on Halloween is uh, a Samhain is a very significant detail actually because anything someone like that would do and anything most of us, if we sat down and wrote someone a letter on Halloween, it's because something's been weighing on us and we thought going into this newish year of Celtic season uh, and the changing of the fairy courts and all that we need to. Clearer conscience of a few things is what I'd say. Put endings where they need to be and let beginnings begin. Yeats must have been distressed that the Matherses had failed to encourage Maud's continued participation in the Celtic rites. For as George Harper notes, his pursuit of her was surely a major reason for the Celtic project. Yeats's Golden Dawn. Finally, and Harper, of course, George Harper was the supervisor of. Uh, Dr. Coliguera in this dissertation. Finally, a note from Moina dated 29th May 1899 stated that she had at last redone Conla after leaving him for ages, although he and some other Celtic designs remained unfinished at present on account of the many distractions in other, in other distractions. Uh, interesting thing that she said there. On account of the many distractions in other distractions, (laughs) which probably included the Egypt, in which she confessed to being deeply involved. What's really cool is that Moina was was doing art and uh, writing invocations and all this stuff for the Celtic mysteries. All of that's lost, along with every painting she ever did, except for two. The one of Mathers that's very famous and that Geraldine, the owner of Atlantis Books, told me that she only got when offer to buy it finally from the private owner, had to remortgage her house or something to the chagrin of her husband. Um, and another painting that was rarely and miraculously found that, that Moina did, also bought by Gerard, Geraldine of Atlantis Books in London. So shout out to Geraldine. She has them on display on top of a bookshelf. Anyone can go in there and see them without problem. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I've got pictures on my Instagram that I've posted and maybe I'll put some on some websites for you all. I, everyone's seen it but you got to just go see it and stand in its presence plus the bookshop's been in his fourth generation witch owned and austin osman spare used to do ritual magic in the back of it back in the day so pretty cool place doing my book signings there and stuff was awesome jimmy page still does has does his girlfriend's poetry readings and book launches there and shows up every week or so so if you ever want to meet jimmy page just go every day and spend non-stop I'm chilling out with Geraldine in the in, in Atlantis books, and you'll meet Jimmy Page, pretty much guaranteed. But, uh, warning, he'll either like you or he won't, so <laughs> tread carefully. Uh, note that this letter I cited above will be published in its entirety in Finneran et al., Letters to W.B. Yeats. The Mathers' involvement in Yeats's Celtic Mysteries was clearly at an end, but Yeats was not to break with MacGregor until April 1900, when he was forced to expel him from the Isis-Urania Temple. See, this is very contrary to what everyone thinks happened, but this is what happened. The uneasy truce, which had prevailed since Mathers' manifesto in 1896, was broken when Mathers attempted to discredit one of the founders of the order, Dr. Wynne Westcott. In a letter of Florence Farr, who was acting chief of the temple in London, Mathers accused Westcott of having forged the cipher manuscripts, MSS, on the basis of which the order had been established. He further asserted that every atom of the knowledge of the order had come through himself alone in direct communication with the secret teachers. Uh-oh. An investigative committee consisting of Yates, Florence Farr, Dr. and Mrs. E.A. Hunter, M.W. Blackton, and G.C. Jones was formed, prompting the enraged Mathers to send Alistair Crowley from Paris to London to take possession of the order rooms and documents. Footnote here. Detailed accounts of these events may be found in Howe, the Magicians of the Golden Dawn, and Yates' Golden Dawn. This is a really important point because that is the most uh, egregiously wrong and faulty book on Golden Dawn that exists probably is Alec Howe. So um, Dr. Caligari here, unfortunately, was working from a very limited uh, source materials and secondary materials, including Howe's uh, absurd uh, book, in which he says that Aleister Crowley, for example, was uh, the most accomplished and Uh, pinnacle of, uh, ultimate example of a a true golden dawn magician, which doesn't make any sense. Even Crowley himself would have laughed if he had known that one day history would have called himself, they called him that. Of course he would have loved it, but he still would have thought it was ridiculous and just uh, a testament to history being written by people who necessarily didn't, maybe were too, too swayed by their agendas or ignorance. Poor scholarship. Despite the egregious actions, of that quite unspeakable person, Crowley, Yeats remained respectful of his former hero. It was Yeats that called Crowley quite unspeakable person. In a letter to Lady Gregory dated 25th April 1900, Yeats said, I arraigned Mathers on Saturday last, before a chapter of the order. I was carefully polite and I am particularly pleased at the fact that in our correspondence and meetings not one word had been written or ever said which forgot the past, and the honor that one owes even to a fallen idol. We have barbed our arrows with compliments and regrets, and to do him justice, he has done little less. So it was actually as amical as a separation as could be hoped for, um, which is, again, something that people don't realize. Um, yeah, And one of the issues between Yates and Crowley, which is one of my favorite subjects, is that Crowley was 25 when he joined, Yeats was thirty-five, and Crowley was quite vocal about the fact that he was a superior poet to Yeats, who was already at that time one of the most famous people in the world, especially in poetry. But just a famous, famous person, um, and so it's it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit douchey to come along when you're just some young upstart that no one's heard of, who's only self-published with his own fortune a bunch of uh, poetry, um, and de- declaring that you're the genius of the world and. People just don't get it. That's, it's, it's, of course they had problems. Yates did not mention Mathers again in the published letters, but Maud Gone commented that she later met with the Matherses before the Great War in Paris. She visited their studio where she found Moina, pretty and charming as ever, painting. She continued, I'm afraid they were having hard times, though both were too proud to admit it. I admired their courage. McGregor was ill He believed he was bewitched. He had some nervous trouble which gave him twitches and he looked haunted. It was a sad finale, but Mathers was to have a fitting epitaph in Yeats's poem All Souls Night, which closed a vision. Uh, Note that that's one of Yeats's main books, his book on spirituality. And I call up McGregor from the grave, for in my first hard springtime we were friends, although of late estranged. I thought him half lunatic, half knave, and told him so, but friendship never ends. And what if mind seemed changed, and it seemed changed with the mind, when thoughts rise up unbid, on generous things that he did, and I grow half contented to be blind? He had much industry at setting out, much boisterous courage before loneliness, had driven him crazed. For meditations upon unknown thought Make human intercourse grow less and less They are neither paid nor praised But he'd object to the host The glass because my glass A ghost lover he was And may have grown more arrogant being a ghost 5. McGregor Mather's beautiful wife Was born Mina Bergson, 1865-1927 to 1927 to an Irish-Jewish couple which had left Dublin to live in Paris. Though information about her is derived chiefly through that on her husband, her importance in the Golden Dawn cannot be minimized. This makes me think, Caligera um, would have loved, if she had gotten to read uh, (laughs) Greer's Women of the Golden Dawn, she would have loved that. So would have Kathleen Raine. Yeah. The people I love, they all die. And so will I. She was one of the very first members of the order, and the first after the three chiefs to be initiated into the inner order of the RR at AC. Actually, I believe she was the first member because Woodman, Westcott, and Mathers created the order. I don't think they really initiated each other. They first did the initiation, I think, for Moyna, I believe, but I could be wrong on that. Much of the new materials needed for the rituals of the Inner Order were in fact obtained from the secret chiefs, Mather's occult teachers, through her Kabbalistic seership. That's a really cool point, actually. It didn't stick out when I've read this the other couple times. Um, The idea that most of the Inner Order tools for the rituals and initiations were divined or scribed by Moina. That is super, super cool. Oh my god. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it wasn't just an order that let women in on equal footing, unlike the Freemasons and SRIA. It was an order essentially run top to bottom from women, by women. Uh, yeah, I, that's that's definitely how I see it. Because as strong as some of the strong men in it were, the women were stronger. Um, yeah. Moina Mathers, whose order motto, Vestigia nulla Retroism." I Never Retrace My Steps, suggests a certain forward-looking courageousness. Came to London in about 1880 to study art at the Slade School. She apparently had talent, as Maud Gaughan observed in later years. She won a scholarship in 1883 and numerous certificates for drawing. That's a sort of wisdom reference, I believe, um, by Ithil Colquhoun. Uh, I covered an essay by a scholar who in Southern California who's actually soon putting out a book on Ithil Colton. though I did uh, make a couple notes on the essay. I commented on hers, and after she requested I send her my books, uh, my main books, which I did, she's not replied ever after to doing podcast or talking. So there's a danger to being an academic. There's a lot of Pettiness, though, I'm not saying that's what this is, though. You know, when someone asks you to send them two free copies of your books and they never write to you again, what else can you take it as? So, But, you know, I'll read her book anyway, and I support anyone doing this scholarship. It's just sad that people are petty. It was she who decorated the rooms and devices of the Golden Dawn. At the Slade School, Bergie, as she was known, became friends with fellow student Annie Horniman, whose generosity enabled her to marry McGregor. One thing this dissertation won't say is the often speculated fact that Annie Horniman was in love with Moina Mathers, um, in fact, and that's why she kept supporting and sending them money and getting mad when Moina when shared that money with her husband, Samuel, who, and my theory is they, had a, they were both possibly gay and had a marriage to keep themselves out of jail, which is where they would have gone. Um, if they had stayed single too long, and speculation had arisen, they could have easily been imprisoned, like Oscar Wilde, whose wife was in the Golden Dawn. As a fun fact, uh, Moina first met Mathers, um, but Horniman was also in love with Yates for a while, so Horniman might have been by. Who knows? I mean. By and queer people have been alive throughout all of history is the, the weird thing is you never hear of them hardly ever so it's easy to think oh they just wasn't many of them no there was just as many of them we just do not hear about them because you go to fucking jail damn explicit rating now damn it i can't help it folks sorry i'm just i'm just a foul-mouthed vancouverite Moina first met Mathers in the British Museum where she was studying Egyptian art and he was researching magical manuscripts their marriage on June 16th June 1890 was a golden dawn affair the minister, witnesses and probably most if not all of the guests were initiates <laughs> I love that the Anglican priest was an initiate um, rem- check out Tony, Dr. Tony Fuller's uh, Anglo-Catholic priests in the golden dawn dissertation for way more info on that it's crazy Although there is some doubt that the marriage was ever consummated, <laughs> yeah, there can be no doubt that the union was extremely productive magically. <clears throat> Beards. Moyna devoted herself to Mather- Mathers as Viola, Bulwer-Lytton's heroine to the magician Zanoni, as Colquhoun put it. sort of wisdom. Note Alistair Crowley... In his libelous novel, Moonchild, 1929, took revenge on several Golden Dawn members, including the Matherses. In the novel, Mathers, thinly disguised as Douglas Count of Glen Leon, turns his young and beautiful wife into the streets and arranges abortions when necessary. <laughs> oh, Yeats as the ineffectual and unwashed Gates also came in for Crowley's abuse, as did A.E. Waitwin, West Westcott, and other Golden Donners. <laughs> I love it; it's so great. Oh, uh, I'm so, like, uh, you know, Crowley's Crowley, and I'm so I'm not a Thelemite, but I do I do appreciate what they bring to the occult world. What would we do without them, man? Sometimes you just gotta be like, ah, uh, just 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 like you know. Th- 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 it can be good just to have some comedy and a bit of that though apparently the OTO has been removing a lot of its best qualities and my friend Chris Bennett's book on Aleister Crowley and uh, drugs and the occult is gonna really put that stuff to the test so watch out OTO there is a atomic bomb by the thousand plus pages per book scholar Chris Bennett coming your way to hold you to account for not being true to your core essence and founding principles I don't know I'm just maybe I'm making this up who knows Anyway, no bad publicity, right? Their relationship was that of distracting, <laughs> not distracting Mage, directing Mage and scrying Sybil, sort of wisdom, comparable to and in many ways foreshadowing the collaboration of Yeats and his wife, Georgie Hygles. The respect and affection which Moyna felt for Mathers, whom she called her husband, comrade, and teacher, Continued after his death, she remained his staunch defender, protesting to Yeats in an exchange of letters dated 5th, 12th, 5th and 12th January and 4th February 1924 of his denigration of the trem in the trembling of the veil, 1922 of her husband's scholarship. Yeah, check out trem- the trembling of the veil is one of Yeats's primary occult uh, works. To mollify. Moina Yeats softened his description ever so slightly and added with her permission a note concerning the origin of the Hermetic students, and in 1925 dedicated a vision to her, that is, Moyna. Though later on I believe he removed that dedication, which was written as to vestigia or something. I'm not sure, I'll have to double check. Moina apparently did much work for Yeats in connection with the Celtic Mysteries during the period of 1897 and 1898. She worked to bring public recognition to the Celtic religion, and several of her letters to Yeats indicated that she was trying to interest a Paris publisher in the Celtic religious movement. Another thing to note is that these people didn't have day jobs, so when they did a lot of work for only a year, it was a lot of work, a ton of work. Um, Yeah, not like we would do a few hours on the weekend or after a, a day shift at some job. Further, she was using her seership to help find the talismanic form of the gods. In a letter to A. E. dated twenty-seven March eighteen ninety-eight, Yates said that he was going to Paris to consult with the Matherses on Celtic matters, and he had heard that Mrs. Mathers had been seeing Conla. Conla is a huge character in the Celtic mysteries, and Conla's well is key. And also, some, the source—the well, first thing I saw when I had an astral experience. Um, as a very as at thirteen, I believe um, I went to exactly as described. Though I knew nothing of any of this stuff because I hadn't read any of it ever before, but I saw it went there to a T, and boom, everything—the tree, the well—you name it—without knowing that he and his London circle had been invoking him constantly. Ah, that's cool. So Mrs. Mathers had been seeing Conla while the adepts in England and London were doing lots of conlet invocations. Um, and back then, the invocation and evocation were a lot more loosely equivocated uh, than they are today as magic has become more technical through our practice of it. Moyna's interest in the Celtic mysteries waned, however, as her interest in Egyptology increased. By 1899, she was writing apologies to Yeats for abandoning the project. Her first loyalty was to her husband's projects, not to Yeats's. Oh, man, can you imagine if, Mathers's, if the Mathers had been alive to like talk to John Anthony West? Man, they would have they they loved that. After Mathers' death, Moyna returned to London and continued her occult work. And I think the fact that Moyna kept going on with her occult work after Samuel died is, uh, is something people maybe don't take enough notice of. Um, thinking that she was a servant To Mathers's vision? No They were, I think they were true partners With true respect, honestly um, I just think they didn't I just think they weren't straight So <laughs> They were probably off uh, Fulfilling themselves with other people um, Protected by the Veil of marriage I mean, that would explain moving to Paris Right? Come on, come on That's why they moved to Paris Mathers is on a bike, in a kilt And is doing paintings and hanging out with other literati artists and artist women. Come on. Since her marriage had all but severed her relations with her respectable family, according to Colquhoun, she would have had little other choice. In 1919, she founded an AO Lodge, that means Alpha et Omega, but without Mathers' guiding hand, she felt disoriented. That was the lodge, of course, that Dion Fortune then joined Violet Firth. nevertheless, the AO Lodge had some importance in occult studies, having had as a member Dion Fortune, there we go, whose popular works on the occult are known to many outside such circles. Moyna Mathers was highly important in all the workings of the Golden Dawn and Yeats's Celtic mysteries, but her influence was concealed behind the romantic and imposing figure of her husband. Remembering Moyna in later years, Yeats dedicated the 1925 edition of A Vision to Vestigia. No doubt he was thinking in part of the similarity between McGregor and Moyna's occult collaboration and that of himself and his wife in the production of A Vision, a book whose authors, like the Secret Chiefs, were in eternity. That's right. Yates's book of vision wasn't written by him or his wife. It was done through automatic writing, which is why it's so weird. I spent actually a couple years developing a teachable course version of it, which I presented at Temple to Hootie in Vancouver for a couple years. Um, The whole all the outlines and documents and papers were among my stolen ones in the libraries with all the hard drives and everything by Griffin students and other ex-GD Temple to Hootie people. I don't want to talk about that. I've talked about that ad nauseum. Fuck those guys. Oh, that's right. I have an explicit rating on it already. I can just let it loose. Okay, folks, buckle up. Frater R.C.'s on a roll. I'm going to let out the Ryan Reynolds and Seth Rogen Vancouver-style swearing on your asses. Boom. Maybe not, but we'll see. It's uh, late at night, and I haven't stopped going since morning, so that's how I roll. Six. Annie Elizabeth Frederica Horniman. 1860 to 1937. Since she was in love with Moyna and Yates, Horniman is a great name for a bi, a bi woman. Yeah, high roller, just like going along, totally horny all the time, but never getting consummation. It's, you can't make this stuff up, man. It's, the irony is too thick. She is best known as the financial backer of the famous Abbey Theater. Love the Abbey Theater. But her association with Yates began many years before She generously agreed in 1904 to purchase and refurbish the old Mechanics Institute and to provide the annual subsidy upon which the production of literary plays for so long depended. And I went and visited that when I was there. I also got to see in Galway all of John Millington Singh's plays done all in one day, back-to-back. A gift from Frater CC, um, an old fellow member from the 90s. And uh, God bless him. One of the best human beings I've ever known, and the only, only Scorpio I've ever really loved. Because those those Scorpios, I tell you. Some of them are sudden to the eagle, some of them sink to the snakes. She was, in fact, an early member of the Golden Dawn, good friend of McGregor Mather's wife, Moina, and intimately involved in many of Yeats' occult affairs, including the Celtic Mysteries. A good friend of Mather's wife, Moina. Mm-hmm. And intimately involved, Annie Horniman's father was Frederick John Horniman, a Quaker who made a fortune associated with the firm of WH and F.J. Horniman and Co. LTD, tea merchants and importers. He traveled both hemispheres for 40 years, collecting curiosities, strange objects, arts and manufactures. In 1890, he opened a public exhibit, and in 1901, he gave the expanded collection to the City of London. He performed additional service to his country as Liberal MP, 1895 to 1904. Annie was Horniman's only daughter, and he provided her with enough money and leisure actively to patronize many interests. Hard knock life. Privately educated, Annie studied for five years at the Slade School of Fine Art, where she met Moinebergs and began her first associations with the occult through Mathers. Though interestingly, these people who did have money and leisure back then, as they called it, um, they were expected to patronize artists and creative people. This is something, I, it's, a, it's a shame we don't see more of today, uh, especially since the rich are so very rich and the artists are so very poor. It seems more like, I mean... You know, all these companies that are designed to serve artists have sort of just really just destroyed the industries from, from graphic design and and visual arts to music. It's uh, pretty disgusting. You say you want a revolution, yeah? You know, we all want to change the world. And now, a word from our sponsors. She decided to join the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in uh, December 1889, as a memorandum quoted by Alec Howe, that brilliant scholar, reported, after having received much kindness from McGregor Mathers and Moyna both, in a very painful part of my life they proved themselves to be very considerate friends. I was initiated during January 1890 at Vestigia's, Moyne's studio in Fitzroy Street. In the hired room below, I took my 1 equals 10 and 2 equals 9 grades. That would be the earth and air grades. In about June 1890, they were married and, I, and lived at Stent Lodge, Forest Hill, where I took my 3 equals 8 and 4 equals 7 grades. Note uh, how page 66, the Fitzroy Street Studio, was the likely site of Yates' initiation of Friday, 7th March 1890 at 6.30 p.m., Ifill Colquhoun speculated that the unhappiness of which Annie wrote was caused by an unsuccessful love affair with a Polish violinist, believe it or not. Her interest in theatre, which was to earn her an honorary MA from Manchester University in 1910 and an appointment to CH in 1933 for services to the drama, began at about this time, inspired according to her biographer in the DNB, merely because her relatives strongly disapproved of it. (laughs) So she was patronizing and supporting causes her relatives disapproved of. You go, girl. That's uh, John Parker, Horniman, Annie Frederica, um, 1949, if you want to know more about that. In May 1894, Annie produced Yates's Land of Hearts Desire, with Florence Farr as manager and John Todd Hunter's Sicilian Idol at The Avenue Theatre in London. Land of Hearts Desire is a great play. Definitely read Yates' plays. They're awesome. I've directed four of them and performed in seven and done eight of them in total, all in the 1990s. In 1904, modern drama received a tremendous boost when she agreed to purchase and renovate the old Mechanics Institute on Abbey Street, Dublin. Her association with the Abbey Theatre lasted until 1910. Her total gift to the theatre, amounting to £12,000. In 1907, she transferred her main activity to Manchester, where in 1908 she bought the Gaiety Theatre, establishing the first modern repertory theatre in England. Ha, that actually is funny, because the title Gaiety Theatre sort of points to my thesis about the sexuality of these Golden Dawn people, which is just so not a big point, but it's, it's, it's interesting to point out things that should seem obvious to us today that were just completely obfuscated back then. Uh, also, 12 million pounds sterling back in 1910 today would have been about the equivalent of 2 to 3 million U.S. or Canadian, depending on, I guess, where the currency exchanges. It can be very drastically, it's very drastically over my lifetime anyway. Uh, when I was young, one pound sterling was worth $3 Canadian, uh, so there you go. Although Annie's theatre activities were necessarily more visible than her occult interests, she was also deeply involved in the Golden Dawn and Yeats's Celtic Mysteries. She was definitely a worker, wasn't she? Moreover, she also cultivated a passion for Wagnerian opera, and from Slade school days until 1914 attended the Bayreuth Festival. The importance of these activities for the rituals of both the Golden Dawn and the Celtic Mysteries cannot be overemphasized. As Ellic Howe noted, and if it's Ellic Howe, you know we gotta pay attention. <laughs> in some respects, the ritual ceremonies were like complicated theatrical performances, and in both sets of rites, rituals echoes of the ring and Parsifal are discernible. Now that's something we could say a lot about. Um, one, yeah, Ellic Howe didn't. Didn't shit the bed too bad on that one. However, he fails to have any understanding of the history of ritual and theater, apparently, because he doesn't use the word psychodrama, neither does, as a result, Caligira here, which is a thing. I mean, go back to the Eleusinian and the Samothracian mysteries, all of this is all psychodrama, which initiation and theater is psychodrama. Boom. Deal with it. Also, the Parsifal thing, as Roger Parasus in The 80s lectured a lecture which was only shared publicly in the last few months of 2020 um, shows that Yeats used the Welsh Parsifal tale to, and his relation with Pamela Coleman Smith to bring to A.E. Waite for the construction of both the Waite Tarot Deck and the Holy Order, the, the Order of the Holy Grail book that he wrote. So, boom, that's really big stuff not beautiful or glamorous herself annie found a certain fulfillment and sense of belonging in the furthering of glamorous and exciting causes she never married but maud gone expressed the opinion that she had been in love with yates that's where that comes from when you know but that could have been maud gone expressing that to dissuade people from realizing that horniman was actually in love with with uh, moina mathers or something who knows it's you were never going to get a straight answer about this stuff from that time. Because remember, these people knew. They knew. you got to think about the, the hermeneutic context, right? The time and the setting and what they knew. They knew All Oscar Wilde's wife, who was in their order, as far as I know. And he got put in jail. And he didn't die there like Jason Loof, for some reason, tells us he did in his... John D. and the Empire of Angels, but Jason Lewis says a lot of weird stuff that isn't historically accurate. Despite the fact that I love his work, other than that, um, uh huh. And they knew that, so that so of course they were going to constantly give misinformation that would lead anyone away from knowing what was actually going on. Because if you knew what someone actually thought and felt, you'd go to jail. They could go to jail. So of course we're never going to. Have a clear understanding of what these people thought and felt when it had to do with something that could get you in prison for your sexuality. Norman has observed that her letters to Yeats contained a certain note of suppressed sentimentality, pointing in that direction exactly. So that's from W. B. Yeats, man and poet. Professor Harper possesses copies of a large number of Miss Horniman's letters to Yeats. To read them is to gain the unmistakable impression that she was indeed in love with Yeats. Okay, that's a good point. But there's also she might have been low with yeah she might have been this really, you know, bisexual person, um, and just you know careful so she didn't go to jail. That suppression seems to have characterized her life. For it was her intolerance in sexual matters and her interference in the private lives of some of the members that eventually provided Mathers with an excuse to expel her from the Golden Dawn but that is definitely the behavior of someone struggling with the morality or culture, which is a social construct of their sexuality. Morality is a social construct or a social agreement. Sexuality is not a social construct. That's a personal choice. However, her feud with Mathers may well have begun. Maybe not choice. You know what I mean. Ugh, how did I even get into this issue these days? Ah, Just do whatever you want. Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. Yea. Yay. However, her feud with the Mathers may well have begun almost with their first meeting, no doubt soon after Moyna met him in the British Museum. Perhaps Annie was jealous of Bergie's affections, as Colquhoun suggested. Certainly her strong will masked a passionate, if suppressed, nature. At any rate, it was Annie's influence that allowed Moyna to marry the penniless would be magician. Financially secure for a little while, the Matherses provided the focus of Golden Dawn activity for about a year, 1890 to 1891, until a quarrel between Mathers and F.J. Horniman resulted in Mathers' removal to Paris. Although for a time, according to Colquhoun, Annie tried to funnel her financial aid only to Moyna, she soon realized her tactlessness. Yeah, no shit. Note, while Colquhoun said only that Annie was annoyed by Dr. Edward Barridge's advocacy of the peculiar psychosexual practices of the American spiritualist Thomas Lake Harris, which Annie felt had no place in the spiritual ambience of the Golden Dawn. Sword of Wisdom, 149. Professor Harper said that Barridge had in fact made sexual overtures towards her, Yates' Golden Dawn. In any case, the real reason for Annie's expulsion probably rests in her inability to submit to any seemingly arbitrary authority. Mathers' demands for submission resulted in the withdrawal of the subsidy on which he and Moyna depended. When Annie refused either to submit or to reinstate the allowance, Mathers suspended her. Yeah, follow the money. Also, Thomas Lake Harris, there's some streets near me and stuff called Thomas Lake Harris Drive and all this shit in Santa Rosa, just 10 minutes from where I'm currently trapped in this COVID land nightmare. So, Barrage was writing letters to Thomas Lake Harris right near here in, in Sonoma County, and they were pushing this whole uh, psychosexual magic revolution, which uh, strayed into the inner order adepti of the Golden Dawn, but never leaked out to the outer order because, again, there wasn't actually much practice in the outer order. You just went through the initiations, almost Masonic style, learning very few things along the way. Like Maud Gon said, I learned a he- few Hebrew words. Um, it was only with the later development of the Golden Dawn, it expanded their outer order teachings um, after 1900, and developed their inner order teachings with flying rules and such. The Golden Dawn's always been expanding itself and expanding its curriculum since its inception onward. The idea that there was ever a fixed state of a true traditional format or curriculum is uh, intellectual absurdity. It's fallacy because when would you say that that state happened? Where, at what point? It was If it was always changing, how can you say this was the real time? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's what I would call not traditional, but dogmatic. Not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, hey, if you want to burn through the outer grades and become an adept really fast, a dogmatic traditional order is the way to go. And then you just have a hell of a long time to do all, the 90, 99% of the rest of the occult work as an adept. Makes more sense to me to expand the. Anyway, this argument's well known. Only by her support were the Matherses able to live. For her reward, she was delegated by Mathers to consecrate Temple number 7, Ahathor, in Paris in 1894. It would be no exaggeration to say that it was only through Annie Horniman's financial support of the Matherses that the Golden Dawn more than survived. In fact, thanks in part to her, it flourished. Annie's break with Mathers and the Golden Dawn for meddling and perhaps unintentional mischief-making in order affairs, sort of wisdom quote, uh, came only two years later in 1896. After this, until her reinstatement by Yeats immediately following Mathers' expulsion in April 1900, Annie had ample time and need to devote to the Celtic mysteries. So Annie Horniman tried to just give money to Moina because she was mad at Mathers and withdrew the money altogether. She, stu- she cut Mathers off, said get a job. Mathers expelled her. Yates expelled Mathers because you can't expel someone because they refuse to keep being your sugar mommy. Duh. So Mathers wanted his sugar mommy back and expelled her from her spiritual order that she was, had funded for many years. And so Yates expelled Mathers, brought back in Horniman, who should have never been expelled in the first place. See, none of this stuff had anything to do with Aleister Crowley. Crowley was just some idiot who you know, was in the right place at the right time to make things worse and get a bunch of manuscripts out of it and some erroneous five-sixth adept degree from Mathers' Thor Temple in Paris that didn't even have a functioning vault, let alone three adepti to do the initiation. A letter from her to F.L. Gardner dated 23 November 1896 reported her working hard at occult scrying, even while on holiday in Italy, and papers in the collection of Gerald York record a number of visions conducted by both Annie and Gardner from 12 September to 3 December 1898. As Professor Harper said, the point is that although Miss Horniman had been expelled from the order, she was making use of its teachings to conduct symbolic experiment with her successor as instructor of beginners, who most likely continued to work for her reinstatement, Yeats's Golden Dawn. The visions recorded in the papers bear a striking resemblance to those experiments conducted by Yeats in exploring the Celtic divinities just a few months before in London and in Sligo in December. Note copies of these papers are in the possession of Professor Harper who made them available for this dissertation exclusively. Further, the many pages of notes in her hand attest to her steady work as Yeats's unpaid and unwilling secretary in these works, and it was probably she who typed the final drafts of the rituals from her notes. That's a very significant point that I've been uh, having to keep in mind as I do the final versions of these functional initiations. That some of the rituals remain in manuscripts suggests that only part of the work had been accomplished by the time of her reinstatement to the Golden Dawn. It's great that while she while she was temporarily expelled or suspended from the Golden Dawn by Mathers, Yeats and her were still just trucking along with the Celtic mysteries. After her return to the fold in 1900, both she and Yeats became much too busy with the feud between the conservatives and the liberals, which finally split the Golden Dawn to complete and the split the Golden Dawn to complete the final revisions of their rituals at that time. That's what really was going on. See, I can't believe how many people keep parroting this the erroneous notions of what what caused the split. Crowley really did a job promoting the idea that the Golden Dawn was abolished after 1900, where all it was was Mathers got kicked out because he was complaining about being cut off by his sugar mama. So the order was doing just fine without him. Who he was already gone and boozing in Paris, and I love Mathers and I love his work and and Moines, but that's what happened. And uh, the Golden Dawn really started coming to its own, honestly, after nineteen hundred, not before. And what caused the the split to the Stella Matutina order version of the Golden Dawn and the Alpha and Omega version of the Golden Dawn was an issue of politics, conservatives and liberals, which is actually very similar to what caused the split between Canada and the U.S. in 2003 when I was the head of Canada at Temple Tehuti. That's what was going on there. Again, it was a very conservative liberal thing. And also we found that the people in the states were doing black magic in in the temple. So, yeah, I wrote a whole document on that called Dogmate Rose- Rosea Crucis. Anyway, ancient history... The complexity of Annie Horniman's personality is reflected in the disparity of opinions about her. Elman called her a generous, cultured spinster. <laughs> While Unterrecker referred to her as the unpopular and domineering Abby Backer. Unterrecker was one of my, the first scholars on Yeats that I ever read. So, note on that, uh, Virginia Moore stated that some of the rituals are in Lady Gregory's hand. However... A comparison of the manuscript rituals with Annie Horniman's letters to Yeats' indicates that Annie, not Lady Gregory, was Yeats' collaborator. Though a factor in Yeats's early inclination towards literary Celticism, Lady Gregory is not a part of the, his occult activities. Uh, for a full description and discussion of the split, as well as Annie's friendship with Mathers, see Harper's book, Yeats's Golden Dawn. Even from her childhood nickname, Puss, reflected early recognition of her potential for tactlessness. Shaw recounted that her apparent displeasure at his discovery years later in a dream that she had been the angel who had backed his early success, arms and the man, was only her way. She was one of those good women who do things, but are also incorrigibly cantankerous. And by Shaw, that's George Bernard Shaw, by the way, motherfuckers. So uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, she was even causing cantankerous issues with George Bernard Shaw, who she helped fund. In a letter to Florence Farr, Yates gossiped that Lady Gregory once described Annie as being like a shilling in a tub of electrified water. Everybody tries to get the shilling out. Oh, painful. Yet her generosity is unquestionable. Her support of the Matherses and by extension the Golden Dawn from March 1891 to June 1896 amounted to a total gift of over 1,334 pounds, according to Ella Howe. It's a lot of money. I mean, like, so splitting the difference between U.S. and Canadian currency or whatever, like, 100 pounds was about $25,000. So she gave them 1,300 pounds. That's way over a million dollars. Um, just over five years, so man, most of us would not be whining and complaining if someone gave us over a million bucks over five years today, would they? Would we? We certainly wouldn't expel them. It's like you cheap bastard, you only gave me a million bucks over five years. Jesus, it really makes it hard to like McGregor Mathers when you hear that. However, her open-handedness was countered by her remarkable rigidity of mind. Few commentators can resist the temptation to note the appropriateness of her Golden Dawn motto Fortiter et recte," or Strongly and Justly. Harper commented that if she had chosen her own motto, as was usually the case, she may have had a sense of irony not easily found in her work. Colquhoun said that it was a record of achievement in respect of its first term, if its second was more of an aspiration. Annie's personality may well have been a factor in the lack of fruition of Yeats' Celtic order plans. Hmm. In 1901, after her reinstatement into the temple following Mathers's ouster, she broke with her once good friend Florence Farr, who was a member of the Golden Dawn and associated in the Celtic Mysteries. Yeah, Annie Horniman was just sort of, it sounds like she wasn't very nice. It's like, well, good. It sounds like she had a good heart, but like, like kept causing problems between people. We've all seen that person in magical groups, right? Like in any human groups, like someone is like, you know, I've got the money, I've got the power. And next thing you know, they're just causing problems with people and you can't really say much about it. Cause you know, yeah, tough one, tough one. That was my experience working for the Anglican church. It's like the parents and the kids and the attendants loved me, but the church council who held financial power over even the clergy hated me because, you know, they wanted things to be the way they wanted, had no interest in theology or the welfare of the actual parishioners, much less the the children whose safety I was overseeing. And uh, I could tell you many stories about that. Farr had supported Annie's reinstatement, but when Annie returned after three years' absence, she found that Farr had allowed a situation to develop in which the Order's traditions, rules, and regulations were being, to her mind at least, grossly violated. Miss Farr, who had succeeded to the leadership of ISIS-Urania soon after the Mathers' removal to Paris, had not the personality for the meticulous attention to detail which Annie Horniman felt was required. She was an actress, I guarantee you that's the case. She was informal about examinations for advancement in grades and lax in record-keeping. Yeah, you can't have that in a cancellarius. As Harper put it, For Annie, any deviation from traditional and accepted practice was unsound, if not evil, and destroyed the peace and, ordinary necess- and order necessary for fruitful occult work. When she was reinstated as scribe, that means cancellarius, she insisted on a strict adherence to the rules and added to the tensions already building for other reasons. Although Yates was kept busy trying to reconcile the difficulties, he was fighting a losing battle, for the, for the opposition was fundamental and unbridgeable. And some of that opposition was uh, sexuality and sex magic going on uh, with Barrage and uh, others promoting that sort of practice. Um, but there was so many other issues going on. There was political things happening in England between the two parties. Yeats joined Annie in the final split of the Isis-Urania Temple, but the Celtic mystery suffered a severe setback with the loss of several of its members, among them Florence Farr, Dr. and Mrs. E.A. Hunter, and Ada Waters. With the Matherses already gone, the split with the other Golden Dawn members left Yeats and Annie with little around which to form their Celtic rites. Annie's participation in the Celtic Mysteries and the Golden Dawn came to an end when she transferred to Manchester in 1907, but she left a permanent mark on their characters. Her generosity sustained the Golden Dawn for a time, and her devotion to Yeats, she kept paying even after she was gone, and occult work aided in the creation of the Celtic Mysteries, but her inflexibility finally hastened the demise of both occult organizations. Yeah... 7. Florence Beatrice Farr Emery, 1860-1917, was the first woman with whom Yeats's sisters thought he might have been in love. Of course, we know Yeats stayed a virgin until 28 when he was hooked up with this uh, mistress, Olivia Shakespeare, who was pretty hot, it seems. Anyway, while love is perhaps too strong a word, their relationship evolved into an enduring friendship. Their acquaintance began in 1890 when Yeats reviewed her performance in Todd Hunter's A Sicilian Idol. He thought she won universal praise with her striking beauty and subtle gesture and fine delivery of the verse. Their friendship continued despite the breakup of the Golden Dawn, during which they supported opposing points of view and endured throughout her self-imposed exile in Ceylon. Ceylon? They continued to correspond sporadically until her death from cancer in 1917. She was, according to Yeats, the one person to whom he could tell everything. And they met on terms of perfect equality. Yeats once wrote to her, To be moved and talkative, unrestrained, one's own self, and to be this not because one has created some absurd delusion that it all is wisdom, but because one has been found unequal. This is the best of life. All this means that I am looking forward to seeing you, that my spirits rise at the thought of it. Florence Farr's father, Dr. William Farr, was fifty, three years old when Florence was born, and a sanitary reformer and medical statistician of international repute He numbered Florence Nightingale among his friends and, according to Josephine Johnson's biography, named his last child after her. See Florence Farr, Bernard Shaw's new woman, um, 1975. Perhaps due to the Farr's delight in their unexpected blessing, Florence's childhood was relaxed and undisciplined. Her early conquests were too easily made, and throughout life she would be incapable of sustained self discipline essential to real art. Although she sought success as an actress, she had perhaps too much individuality, as Yeats himself noted, to submerge herself in any greater whole, be it a theatrical production or a magical society. Like Annie Horniman, who was to become her opponent in the Golden Dawn difficulties, Florence Farr had a headstrong and rebellious temperament. Unlike Annie, however, she was also, as G.B. Shaw, George Bernard Shaw commented, in violent reaction against Victorian morals, especially sexual and domestic morals. In a letter to Lady Gregory dated 1913, Yeats quoted Mabel Beardsley, sister of the illustrator of the Yellow Book and the Savoy, in remembering Florence Farr as one who used to make even me blush. That's obviously with her outrageous and provocative behavior. Ho, 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 it to do? Certainly she enjoyed unusual freedom and perhaps was victimized as a result. She had discreet affairs with Yates, Shaw, and even, according to Francis King, the notorious Alistair Crowley. I'm not sure how much I would take Francis King and his ritual magic in England seriously, but I'm not the person to ask. There's better scholars who could tell you about that. Evidently, she was too good-natured to say no. Mm. As Shaw once noted, she, in her youth, caught on prematurely to old men and egotists. She was eaten up and preyed on. So these are the views of some authors writing a while ago and uh, some of them also this is also the views of people in the 70s and I think even then there was often it was often seen that though if a woman was self empowered sexually she would still be seen as a victim because how could she possibly want to be promiscuous or sex positive. So those issues definitely are something we need to look at hermeneutically when we're looking back at these times, even these times as in the 70s, 1970s, um, just something to note. But at the same time, th- these were the perceptions, and this is what was written, so there we have it. Shaw's comment may refer to Florence Farr's ability to inspire men of genius to the accomplishments she could not herself achieve. She was convinced that half of his Caesar and Cleopatra was her in her Egyptian period, and that she was the Cleopatra who offered that libation of the wine to the table-wrapping sphinx. Yeats was at least partially inspired by her to write his early occult plays The Land of Heart's Desire, The Shadowy Waters, that was the first play I directed and performed in, and The Countess Kathleen. I can't remember if we did that one. I think I might have been... F- the Yeah, The Spurn... I don't know. Who knows, whatever. Together... They envisioned a theater which would be a training for the priesthood, as she was one of the few capable of chanting his verse plays in a sufficiently poetic manner. They actually came up with a whole style for doing this. Although she denigrated her real talents and her best physical attributes in favor of false ones to Yeats's chagrin, just as later she cultivated the wrong aspects of occult societies. Who knows, these are... Questionable things, especially these days with our perspective being so distant. The theatre brought Florence Farr to the Golden Dawn through her friendship with Annie Horniman, who financed some of Farr's early productions at the Bedford Park Playhouse. It was no doubt a natural step from the ritualistic poetry plays to the actual rituals of an occult society, She was one of the early members of the Golden Dawn and took sapientia sapiente dono data, wisdom is a gift given to the wise, as her motto when she was initiated in July 1890. It was she, in fact, who first learned from Mathers the method of meditation which Yeats described in his memoirs as perhaps the intellectual chief influence of my life up to perhaps my 40th year. This technique was to be the principal method of obtaining wisdom for the Celtic mysteries and was used in the Celtic explorations. Yeats related that Farr returned with a most wonderful tale from Forest Hill, where Mathers had caused her to see visions stimulated by the use of talismans. Later... She was to ignore the warnings inherent in Mathers' techniques of astral vision, passively accepting whatever came into her consciousness without questioning its validity or benignity. She might just have been a pre-runner of the New Age methodologies, eh? (laughs) Slight jab. Nevertheless, despite her later alleged misuse of the visionary techniques, Florence possessed considerable occult talents, and her interests were wide and eclectic. One of her earliest interests was Egyptology, which was she characteristically combined with her theatrical talents by collaborating with Olivia Shakespeare. Ah, I mentioned her. In the 1902 production of two plays, The Beloved of Hathor and The Shrine of the Golden Hawk, 1905, quote, whose object was to illustrate the life and thought of ancient Egypt, as Yeats reported. They appealed to Yeats for being... Less plays than fragments of a ritual, the ritual of a beautiful forgotten worship. But if Florence Farr and Yeats were drawn together over a mutual love of ritual and chanted poetry, they were drawn still closer by the ousting of Mathers from the Golden Dawn in 1900. Reasons for the ouster were numerous. Mathers' control over the order had begun to slip when he and Moyna moved permanently to Paris in May 1892, leaving their London deputies first When Westcott and then Florence, I mean, he may as well move move to Puyallup, Washington, for all we know, right? (laughs) Sensing a weakening of allegiance in London, Mathers produced his manifesto, dated 29 October 1896, which he required every member to sign. Sounds familiar. With her inborn lack of respect for authority as such, Florence no doubt found this a difficult declaration to make, but she signed nevertheless... When Mathers sent Alistair Crowley to London to take over the Order Rooms, Florence and Yates were united in their opposition to that abominable person. After Mathers's ouster in April 1900, Florence occurred, concurred with the reinstatement of Annie Horniman, whom Mathers had expelled in December 1896. Note for details on that see Yates' Golden Dawn. In late 1900, however, soon after Annie Horniman's reinstatement, the disagreements began within the rebel groups which were to cause the Great Schism. These disagreements came about as a result of Horniman's protestations against Florence Farr's group known as the SPHERE, a secret study group within the greater organism of the Order. Through the sphere, additional knowledge of the Golden Dawn symbolism was sought by means of astral investigations of the type learned from Mathers at Forest Hill and not unlike the very techniques used by Yeats, Horneman, Farr, and others to put together the knowledge of the Celtic mysteries. Why the sphere would have, should have upset both Yeats and Horneman so profoundly when they themselves were conducting closed, if not exactly sacred, explorations is not entirely clear. Yeah, why would Florence Farr's sphere group ...cause a problem when Yeats and Horniman the rest had a, a Celtic mystery sphere group going on, right? That doesn't make sense. And the reason is, it's not true. All of that history is completely false, and unfortunately Dr. Calagira only had what she had to go on, and it's not accurate in the least. Nevertheless, in attempting to work out a compromise, Yeats suggested in an unpublished letter dated January 1901 that if Farr could not keep faith by opening her group to all, he would be forced to cease work with her outside the order. On some project which offered her great opportunities, referring of course to the Celtic mysteries or perhaps theatrical plays, Professor Harper speculates that the project of which he had spoke could have been the Irish National Theatre Society, on which he was then hard at work. But he may well have been referring to another nationalist project, their proposed Celtic mysteries. Note. Note. In a letter to Lady Gregory dated 13th January 1902, Yeats stated that he had done a great deal of work on his magical rites. If Yeats, and this is 1902, so all the stuff we're saying the Celtic Mysteries was done by 1900 or 19, 1898 is obviously garbage. If Yeats was referring to his Celtic Mysteries, as I believe he was, and the work likely was done without Farr's continued collaboration for Yeats, had discovered occult work with her in the Golden Dawn the previous year. Had discontinued occult work with her in the Golden Dawn the previous year. Even if Yates had been able to continue work with her, it is extremely doubtful that Annie Horniman could have easily have forgiven and forgotten. Oh, Horniman at any rate Yeats recognized that Florence Farr's overwatchful individualism posed a real threat to the organic unity of the Order of the Golden Dawn and perhaps to his Celtic project as well certainly she was unable to comprehend that Yeats was seeking in both what Yeats that Yeats was seeking in both societies not simply an organized mean for experiment and research but an actual being an organic life holding within itself the highest life of its members now and in the past. Amen. Note on that, Yates wrote a thing called Is the Order of the RR at AC to Remain a Magical Order? That was a pamphlet. I found actually a first edition of that in Ireland in 2003 and to my everlasting regret did not buy it at that tiny bookstore where I found it under a shelf. Yeah, that would be worth a small fortune today, but say la vie. I was on my honeymoon, so I fucked up big time. I was busy being in love for six months. That didn't end well. Thus began the end of the two orders, the Celtic and the Hermetic. Eh, It's well said, if not fully true. Surprisingly, as bad as these quarrels were, and while most upsetting to all order work, they did not seem to come between Yeats and Florence Farr in their work on poetic drama. (laughs) These uh, yeah, these people, they kept doing plays together and stuff, so there you go. None of this stuff was too big a deal. In November 1901, they had patched their choral somewhat and were working with Arthur Dolmich, who had designed a peculiar stringed instrument called a psaltery. To this device, Florence Farr chanted poetry. In June 1902, Yeats lectured at Oxford on his particular ideas of dramatic speech set to music, and Florence Farr provided demonstrations by chanting to the psaltery. These demonstrations apparently continued as reviewers were discussing them as late as May 1903. Yeah, does that sound like Ezra Pound at all? <laughs> it's just having some fun there. Florence Farr and Yeats were able to patch their quarrel for art's sake, but neither the Golden Dawn nor the Celtic Mysteries was to flourish after their split over the sphere group. Caligura here says sphere, but we call it the sphere group. And sphere groups were, were fine. I don't know, what, what, there was something else going on that we still haven't really figured out, but maybe someone has. Let me know if you know. 30 years later, Yeats remembered Florence, not for her work with him in drama, but for her occult powers and her personality. In All Souls Night, he wrote, On Florence Emery I call the next, who finding the first wrinkles on a face admired and beautiful, and knowing that the future would be vexed, With minished beauty, multiplied commonplace, Preferred to teach a school, Away from neighbor or friend, Among dark skins and there, Permit foul years to wear, Hidden from eyesight to the unnoticed end. Before that end, much had she raveled out, From a discourse in figurative speech, By some learned Indian, On the soul's journey, how it is whirled about, Wherever the orbit of the moon can reach Until it plunge into the sun And there, free and yet fast Being both chance and choice Forget its broken toys And sink into its own delight at last 8 Also active in Yeats's Celtic mysteries Were five persons Who, but for their golden dawn activities Would be quite forgotten today Unlike their more celebrated contemporaries, whose lives reverberated throughout Fin de siècle London, they did nothing of note save for their occult activities. A little mean to say they did nothing of note save, but I guess I guess nothing that we would note. But yeah, no, that's fair. I'm just, whatever. Dr. Edward A. Hunter, Hora et Semper, and his wife, Harrietta Dorothea, Deodate, were early Golden Dawn initiates. Alan Wade reported in his edition of Yeats's letters that Yeats first met them at a meeting of the Theosophical Society in 1889 or 1890. He probably induced them to join the Golden Dawn soon thereafter and began experimenting with Mrs. Hunter soon after that. In an article in the first issue of the Irish Theosophist, October 1892, Yeats wrote that he was accustomed to meet now and then with an occultist and student of alchemy, whom he designated as D.D. Note, Frayne incorrectly guessed that D.D. D. was either Florence Farr or Maud Gone. Oops. Tired of their occult visions which they had learned to see with the internal eyes, they called upon the Irish fairies and witnessed a combat of the good and evil spirits. Yeats concluded, The fairies are the lesser spiritual moods of that universal mind, wherein every mood is a soul and every thought a body. As Frayne pointed out, the concept that moods are the spiritual emanation of the world's soul was to form the basis of Yeats's aesthetic. Mrs. Hunter became one of the Order's foremost clairvoyants. Wade remarked that Yeats felt Mrs. Hunter capable of clearly discerning in symbolic picture the essence of myth or legend. She, therefore, was especially valuable to Yeats in discovering the forms of the Celtic deities. Their working relationship is illuminated by two letters which Yeats wrote immediately before the first visionary exploration of 29 December 1897 and following the second on 1 January 1898. Note, these visionary explanations are presented in Appendix 1. Quote, My dear Mrs. Hunter, I am very anxious to consult with you and Mr. Hunter about the divine world in our little scheme, but next Sunday is unfortunately out of the question, as I have to speak at a meeting on that day. Could I go down to you on, say, Friday morning and work on the gods during the afternoon and evening and stay with you until Saturday, on which day I have to speak at a meeting at the Irish Lit Society? I told Miss Briggs our plan, as she is certainly one of the best of our seers, and she said she would like to go out to you if you would let her in the evening and work at some vision of the divine world. The really important thing is to get the talismanic Talismatic shape of the gods done he never did but i started doing work on that in the 90s and have continued doing that to this day so la-di-da someone's done it that they were able to accomplish this is evidenced by the extent manuscripts which include line drawings of the gods and explore their garments and insignias yeah but yes Great grief was that he never finalized the god forms and their symbolism, and that really still is something that should just evolve with us as we go, everyone doing this work. Another letter to Mrs. Hunter, dated the same day as their first exploration, Yeats no doubt wrote soon after he had departed from his fellow seers Quote, I want to talk to you and your husband about a certain part of the Celtic project in which you can be a great help. I am following out a plan laid down long ago. And after consultation with our chiefs, Mathers, is it going to be a great... that The Mathers thing is actually a, a bracket uh, note by Dr. Caligira, wondering who the chiefs are. So that actually tells us that she doesn't know what he meant by the chiefs. He didn't mean the secret chiefs. He meant the chiefs of the Second Order, uh, who run the Outer Order as well. So Mathers would have been one of them, along with Westcott. I think Woodman was gone by then, but someone else would have been one of them. It is going to be great, a great movement in the end. I do not want you to mention this among the other members of the Golden Dawn for the present, as I want us to all to do a little irresponsible experimentation for a while. I have had a number of visions on the way home, greatly extending the symbolism we got tonight, 1st January 1898. The souls of ordinary people remain after death in the water's And these waters become an organized world if you gather up the flames that come from the waters of the well when the berries fall upon it and make them into a flaming heart and explore the water with this as a lamp. They are the waters of emotion and passion in which all but purified souls are entangled and have the same relation to our plane, a fixed material, form as the divine world of fluid fire has to the heroic world of fixed intellectual form. I have been shown also that beside Fergus, the dark being who carried the child, there are two very old shadows who flit about in the woods. Strange half-naked beings who are shadows even to the heroes and are the oldest of the heroic race, represent Keter and Hokma, He writes Hokmar, from the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. As I saw them, they were withered and little with age. A note appears at the bottom of the page in Mrs. Hunter's hand. But before I say that, I'd like to make a quick note. The references Yeats were saying there seem probably very uh, uh, poetic or overly poetic of fluid fire and also of fixed intellectual form. Those are all references to passages in the Kabiric Mysteries of the Practicus Initiation as well as in the Philosophist Initiation, 3 equals 8 and 4 equals 7. So those mysteries um, were, the, the poetry of these rituals were always in these people's minds. And I, I can see how it would be hard for any scholar to really understand what's going on if you didn't, hadn't been through those rituals and also performed them dozens and dozens of times and studied them for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, so that's something that I can offer here. Mrs. Hunters says, The magic well of Conla lies at the foot of a mountain ash. Those who gaze therein may, if they can find a guide, be led to the fount of perpetual youth. The ash berries fall into the waters and turn them to fire. Conla, the druid, is the guardian of the well. Yeats worked closely with the hunters for almost ten years. They shared his enthusiasm for the Celtic mysteries, and in 1900, allied themselves with Yates, Annie Horniman, and Florence Farr in the expulsion of Mathers. To Mrs. Hunter, as scribe, fell the onerous task of reporting to Aleister Crowley Isis-Urania's refusal to recognize his 5 equals 6 initiation at Ahathor in Paris at the hands of Mathers and his wife. Crucial point there that everyone calls me out on. Everyone says I'm wrong on this, even the experts, but... If Mathers and Moyna tried to do a five-six initiation with only two adepts and no vault, it's not valid. Under no circumstance would that be considered valid, as far as I can tell. Plus, the way it's set up is that if the order doesn't recognize it, then it it doesn't count. It's got to be everything has to be done with permission of the chiefs of that order. And if one person just does sort of a sceptering or a pseudo initiation of someone, so that they can go and rob the other members. And kick them out of, like, kick 99% of them out of their own group. That's not legit. So Crowley was never initiated into adepthood, never got the five equals six, and certainly never got the training or education that came along with it, which back then was the majority of the training. As traditionalists like to say, um, there was very little in the outer order. That's why Crowley and everyone else zoomed through it. And so Crowley never got... If you look at Crowley's later works, you can see major gaps in his knowledge, which today those gaps would be considered the most basic bare-bones techniques, and you can see him struggling with not knowing them. He knew a lot of stuff, contributed a lot of stuff, did a lot of cool stuff, but that still stands. For her efforts, she earned Crowley's enmity. Ella Cow reported that Crowley referred to her as a degenerate who called herself Deodate. Yeah... Nice guy, that Crowley. Kind human being. Friendship notwithstanding, the hunters nevertheless took Florence Farr's part against Yates and Annie Horniman in the later controversy over the sphere. Again, that's not good information. By that time, however, a large part of the clairvoyant work had been done, and at least the first draft of some rituals had been written based on the early explorations. We have no evidence to suggest that the hunters continued working with Yeats on Celtic matters after 1900. But considering Yeats' unusual ability to keep his friends, even while arguing first principles with them, they well may have continued. Yeah, that definitely sounds like uh, Yeats, a Gemini with Aquarius moon. (laughs) One person who did continue to work with Yeats on Celtic Mysteries, even while staunchly supporting Mathers in the revolt of the Second Order, was Miss Ada Waters, Repté-Pété. She hosted the Mathers' brief return to London in 1896 and refused to sign the letter of petition of 1897 calling for Annie Horniman's reinstatement. Later, she was to side with Florence Farr in the sphere controversy. She was, in fact, a member of Farr's group, according to Ella Cow. For all that, for all of that, she nevertheless was recorded as having been present at Celtic Exploration 1, 29 December 1897. How much a part she played otherwise is unknown. And it was very common for adepts to do work with each other, and they wouldn't necessarily need to be marked down or credited. I mean, these... If you're doing a lot of ritual work and a lot of magic all the time, you're talking to each other all the time, you're just sharing insights you've had from different scrying sessions, astral travels, evocations, whatever. I mean, from my own experience, I can tell you, like, uh, this stuff grows up out of a community, not out of uh, some soloist sitting in his basement late at night. It grows up from constant working with each other and constant collaboration and checking with each other on different Things to see where the similarities are, because that's what's considered most valid. Is when you both do, a, when a bunch of people do a bunch of things, and you see commonalities. That's what's considered the most important stuff. Another Golden Dawn member to participate in Yates's Celtic Mysteries was Miss Mary Briggs, Paramare ad Astra. Her function in the Golden Dawn, according to Alec Howe, was to circulate notices of the meetings to the members. Her apparent function in the Mysteries was to act as seer. And to record the group visions or explorations. Her clairvoyant powers must have been strong, for Yeats mentioned her in a letter to Mrs. Hunter, quoting, quoted above as being one of the best of our seers. She was present at all three of those all-important meetings, and was in fact the only other person present with Yates for the third exploration. Um, more incorrectly identified, PMAA as Annie hornyman, by the way. Miss Briggs may have been responsible for obscuring the identity of one of the six sorores and fraters, huh, fratres should be, involved in the explorations. For the motto initials GF, which appear in the list of those present for Explorations 1 and 2, no owner can be found. No motto of the initials in question appears on any of the extant membership lists for the Golden Dawn. However, if Miss Briggs was recording the motto as it was sounded, it may well refer to W.F. Kirby, whose Golden Dawn title was Gnetho Foss. So that would sound like G-F, even though Foss is spelled P-H-O-S. Note, Professor Harper finds no other explanation for the initials in this case. So that's probably what that was. Little is known of Kirby's, Kirby's activities in either the Golden Dawn or the Celtic Order, but he was Honorary Secretary of the Hermetic Society founded by Edward Maitland and Anna Bonus Kingsford in 1884. It was to the authors of The Perfect Way, Anna Kingsford, M.D., and Edward Maitland, that McGregor Mathers dedicated his translation of the Kabbalah Unveiled in 1887. It probably helped fund his research, actually, and helped him out financially. Mm, If not entirely, actually. Can you imagine if McGregor Mathers could have made money just having a podcast, being all, like, bombastic at times, and then, like, radically mystical and all queer at other times? Like, just a total character, man. Not to mention Crowley having a podcast, that would have been a treat. Oh, my God. Talk about, like, some kind of Victorian Alex Jones. (laughs) <laughs> Thus, the listing of those with whom Yeats shared the important first efforts to get the talismatic shape of the gods for his Celtic mysteries is complete. Although the group continued to associate throughout the 1890s the troubles in the Golden Dawn, Mather's expulsion, and the later controversy over the sphere, which pitted Yeats against one of his earliest collaborators, Florence Farr, no doubt combined with Yeats's increasing commitments to his more public arts, to break up the fruitful workings of the six most directly involved with the first Celtic explorations. Nine. And we come to my favorite guy. Guy slash girl, actually. Imagine that. How could one be a guy and a girl? The fever of Celtic esotericism burned high in William Sharp, 1855 to 1905, who, after 1893... Wrote also under the pseudonym of Fiona MacLeod. Certainly, of all those connected with Yeats's Celtic mysteries, Sharp was one of the strangest and most intense. Second only to Mathers in the instability of his personality, though not a member of the Golden Dawn, Sharp was, however, far more productive from a literary standpoint, and for all of Mathers' posing, more Celtic. <laughs> it was Sharp's writings that gave Yeats and his collaborators much of their nomenclature. From his work came the names Wayfarer and Herdsman, replacing the pseudo-Latin of the Golden Dawn rituals with something more nearly Celtic, and the close identity of the explorations and rituals with the living green fire of healing nature. William Sharp was born in Paisley in the Scottish Highlands, where early on he was profoundly influenced by the stories and songs of his Highland nurses, and by the beauty of the countryside. He was wildly romantic, running three times away from school to go to sea, and actually spending four months with a roving band of gypsies. As his wife Elizabeth recounted in her biography of him, even as a small boy, Sharp was intensely aware of an unseen spiritual world paralleling the visible one. In a lecture to the Franco-Scottish Society in 1907, Yeats said that Sharp was the most extraordinary psychics he had ever encountered. See William Sharp a memoir nineteen ten. Together they engaged in psychic experimentation which eventually resulted in a nervous breakdown for Sharp. Yep. As Elizabeth reported, the prolonged strain of the heavy dual work, as Fiona MacLeod, added to by an eager experimentation with certain psychic phenomenon with which he had long been familiar but wished further to investigate efforts in which at times he and Mr. WB-8's collaborated began to tell heavily on him and to produce very disquieting symptoms of nervous collapse. Perhaps if Sharp had been a member of the Golden Dawn, he would have learned the safeguards taught by Mathers to avert the ill side effects of visionary experiments. Sharp put himself under a further strain writing as Fiona MacLeod. More than just a literary pseudonym, she was closer, in fact, to being a secondary personality. Sharp even took to signing letters to his wife with the amalgam, Wilfian. The inspiration for this personality evidently came from a friend who in 1890 stood as a symbol of the heroic women of Greek and Celtic days who unlocked new doors in him and put him in touch with ancestral memories. From then on, Sharp began a new style of writing, much in contrast to the highly regarded works of literary and art criticism which he had hitherto produced. The works of Fiona MacLeod, mystical, romantic, but sometimes vague and diffuse, were written in a trance-like state and were in fact often merely records of visionary experiences. In a letter to a fan who had guessed the well-kept secret of Fiona's true identity, Sharp wrote that as Fiona, note um, quickly, uh, Yeats suspected McLeod's true identity, but his suspicion was not confirmed until after Sharp's death. So the whole time that Yates was being influenced by Fiona McLeod's writing for the Celtic Mysteries while doing ritual work with Sharp for the Celtic Mysteries, he had no idea that they were the same person. That's intense. Sharp wrote to this fan I can write out of my heart in a way I could not do as William Sharp, and indeed I could not do so if I were the woman Fiona MacLeod is supposed to be, unless veiled in scrupulous anonymity. This rapt sense of oneness with nature is this cosmic ecstasy and elation this wayfaring along the extreme verges of the common world, all this is so wrought up with the romance of life that I could not bring myself to express by my outer self, insistent and tyrannical as that need is. My truest self, the self who is below all other selves, and my most intimate life enjoys sufferings, Thoughts, emotions, and dreams must find expression. Yet I cannot save in this hidden way. In response to this personality, Yeats wrote a review of MacLeod's spiritual tales in The Sketch for 28 April 1897. He spoke of the curious, mysterious, childlike voice of her stories, so full of spiritual enthusiasm and her absolute identity of nature with the creatures of the winds and waters of the world and the emotions of the peasants. He felt that she had the keys of those gates of the primeval world which shut behind more successful races when they plunged into material progress. Finally, Yeats bestowed upon her his greatest praise when he wrote, Her art belongs to a greater art, which is of revelation and deals with invisible and impalpable things, Its mission is to bring us near to those powers and principalities which we divine in mortal hopes and passions, although we cannot see or feel them. Yeats recognized MacLeod as a fellow quester, wayfaring along the extreme verges of the common world, in search of the spiritual insight to be found in Celtic myth. As John Frayne observed, Yeats valued MacLeod's writings because it seemed an example of the decline of the realistic and the coming of symbolic art. Furthermore, as she was a Scottish Celt, her work proved the universality of the Celtic spiritualism which Yeats valued above all, and as he hoped to engulf the world of Saxon materialism in a sea of Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and Bretonic culture. Yeats first discovered the similarity between his own and Sharpe's philosophies in an early experience of parallel but independent visions. Yeats told in his memoirs, of an extraordinary vision he received by evoking lunar powers while visiting with Edward Martin in the summer of 1896. He saw a centaur and a naked woman shooting an arrow at a star. Later, Yeats discovered a story of MacLeod's entitled The Archer, which recounted a vision of a similar scene. Her story had been written before Sharp had heard of Yeats's own vision, which the latter recounted in a letter to Sharp dated August 1896. Like Sharp, Yates wrote, I had some singular experiences myself. I invoked one night the spirits of the moon and saw between sleep and waking a beautiful woman firing an arrow among the stars. That night she appeared to Simons, who is staying here, and so impressed him that he wrote a poem on her the only one he ever wrote to a dream calling her the fountain of all song or some such phrase she was the symbolic diana i invoked a different spirit another night and it appeared in dreams to an old french count who was staying here and was like simon's ignorant ignorant of my invocations he locked his door to try to keep it out <laughs> Awesome Yeats was doing an invocation Relevant to what his buddy dreamed In the other room (laughs) And his buddy then went and wrote a poem about it Showed it to Yeats and he's like Whoa (laughs) Fiona later wrote to Yeats about the archer In a vague way I realize that something of tremendous moment Is being matured just now We are on the verge of Vitally important developments And all the heart All the brain Of the Celtic races shall be stirred We shall perish, you and I and all who fight under the lifting of the sunbeam, but we shall pioneer a wonderful marvel out of new life for humanity. And there you have it, magic. At the time, deeply engrossed in the golden dawn and Celtic mysteries, Yeats must have felt strongly the necessity of Sharp's collaboration in his Celtic ventures. He was collecting all the best seers he could find, and a late incident, 1897, must have convinced him of Sharp's psychic powers. While both were visiting Tullira Castle, Yates was able to produce visions in Sharp merely by psychic suggestion. Quote, when I walked with him, I would say in my own mind, When we come to the third bush, let us say a red spirit will rush out of it. We would come to the bush, and he would say, some red thing has come out of the bush! Despite Sharp's obvious value to the exploration of the Celtic mysteries, however, we have no direct evidence that he ever participated in more specific activities, such as trying to get the talismanic shapes of the gods or formulating the actual rites. In fact, Yeats seemed rather to have had a difficult time enlisting either Sharp or Fiona in his scheme directly, because he thought they were two different people. His letters spoke, hopefully, of collaboration. <laughs> Can you imagine William Sharps getting letters from Yeats under two different names, appealing for the same thing, and having to reply back in two different voices? <laughs> yeah. Fun times. What you could do before Google search. Early in 1897, Yeats wrote to Fiona from Paris, where he was visiting with the Matherses, that he was trying to start a Celtic society in that city. He said... I have some hopes that Mr. Sharp will come to Paris on his way back to England. I have much to talk over with him. I am feeling more and more every day that our Celtic movement is approaching a new phase. Our instrument is sufficiently prepared as far as Ireland is concerned, but the people are less so, and they can only be stirred by the imagination of a very few acting on all. Sharp did not visit Paris for two years. However, in an unpublished letter to Yeats, Dated 29th May 1899, Vestigia. Mrs. Mathers wrote, We have been much delighted to meet William Sharp, who was over here. It is impossible to say how much we liked him. We felt greatly in sympathy. He is a very remarkable being, I think in every respect, and so strangely psychic. That's super cool. This letter will be published in letters to W.B. Yeats. Man, probably is by now. Fiona, of course, never appeared to help Yeats with his rights, and Sharpe's nervous breakdown brought on him, in part by his psychic experiences, put an end to any direct collaboration. Nevertheless, Fiona, for whose sake Yeats called his, mysterious, his mysteries Celtic rather than simply Irish, contributed much through her stories and poems. Yeah, so Yeats was going to call it the order of Irish mysteries. Um, once he realized there was, there's too many symbols and images, and uh, if you took all six Celtic streams and put them into one. So he was going to just stick with the Gaelic, w- of which Irish is the, pres- the antecedent of Scottish and Manx. And it was because of Sharp that he, he said, okay, let's call it Celtic, because that at least includes all of them, but specifically the Scottish and Irish and Scottish mythology is much more congruent than Irish is with Welsh. Despite having still the same gods in common and same stories in common, the, the Welsh does veer off in a very radically different direction, especially linguistically, which is a huge concern. And the whole reason I'm doing this now is because John Michael Greer went off in the Welsh direction and totally left the Gaelic side undeveloped. And it's like, okay, I guess I got to do it. So there we go. In June 1898, Yeats wrote to her of having read Green Fire, which he thought too self-consciously picturesque. However, he found that the atmosphere and the romance of much of it, of the herdsman in part in particular, haunts me ever since I laid it down. In November 1901, he wrote, I like your verses on Myrias, and like them better perhaps because of the curious coincidence that I did in summer verses about lovers wandering in long-forgotten Myrias, They were thinking along similar lines, perhaps deriving inspiration from each other's work. Both saw the symbolic significance of Murias, one of the four sacred cities of Ireland, and Yeats appropriated the figure of the herdsman in MacLeod, a shadowy Christ figure, to be the guide of the Celtic neophyte, who in turn was called the Wayfarer, after another mystical character in one of Fiona's Celtic romances. 10. George Russell 1867 to 1935, better known as A.E., was almost as well known as Yeats in his day. Fun fact, it's true. By profession of clerk, he later became the prime mover of the Irish Agricultural Organization Society, which instituted farm cooperatives and agricultural banks throughout Ireland. He then became editor of the Irish Homestead, the organ of the cooperative, later known as the Irish Statesman. This publication was of such high intellectual and literary quality that it was read by British and American intellectuals as much by Irish farmers. I mean, if that's not remarkable, then what is? A.E.'s contributions to the political and economic life of Ireland were so valued that he was awarded honorary degrees from Yale University, 1928, and Dublin University, 1929. (laughs) Devlin's like, oh, Yale did it? Well, we're going to do it too. Oh, yeah, come on, come on. And was invited to the United States by F.D. Franklin Delano Roosevelt to share his knowledge of agricultural economics. Kapow. Yet the extremely practical editor and pragmatic politician was also a religious genius and a true mystic. The fluidic world, as Yates once wrote, flowed before him, in images and visions which obscured the phenomenal universe. Memoirs. In art school in Dublin, where Yeats and A.E. met in their late teens, A.E. would ignore the class model to paint the images which rose before his eyes. He had been experiencing visions since childhood. His world was as peopled by dazzling godlike beings as McGregor Mathers was haunted by phantoms in later years. Throughout a lifelong friendship, the profound yet subtle effect which AE had upon Yeats was to convince him by example of the utter reality of the unseen world and its ultimate accessibility. I love that like this guy who got honorary doctorates and invited to meet Roosevelt because of his work in agriculture and farming and, and, and all of and politics was the one who Perhaps most profoundly convinced Yeats of an unseen reality that we could tap into. That's pretty, that's pretty hardcore. While Mathers proclaimed that there was no part of him that was not of the gods, A.E.'s life was itself an illustration of the divinity in man. So I like that A.E.'s uh, influence in the Celtic Mysteries is one that brings us back into matter, into an embodiment, God as nature the divine realm, as material. That's something I've always really loved about this, since reading all this stuff when I was a teen. um, I've always liked spirit and matter more than the idea that the world's evil and we need to hurry up and get on to the next life by being morally pure in this one. In A.E., Yeats discovered an ally for his secret thought, as antagonistic to the views of the materialist as he Elman went so far as to say that for the young Yeats, Russell was a godsend. They plunged into a cult study together in 1885, founded the Dublin Hermetic Society, to discuss theosophy, esotericism, and magic. This is before the Golden And you can read about more about that in The Man and the Masks. They, in A.E., Yeats found also someone as interested in the folklore of the Irish peasants as he was, but perhaps for a different reason – Together they wandered, the Irish countryside collecting tales. A.E. found the mountains dense with fiery forms and awful and awful as Sinai. He brooded over the mounds, which are all that remain of the duns in which the early Gales lived. And they arose again before his eyes, so that he looked on what seemed an earlier civilization. Reference there, George Russell, A.E., The Candle of Vision, London, Macmillan, 1918, is a great book. Unlike Yeats, A.E. was able to see in waking visions the ancient races dressed in homespun, cutting their meat with knives and lifting it to their lips with their fingers. Such visions, A.E. believed, were not mere imagination, but were evoked out of vaster memory than the personal. A belief, Yeats shared... Contact with the earth, in this way, would bring the ancient joy to the soul in its journey back to the light, from which all had its birth. So we return to the spiritual divine light through the world. I wonder if that makes sense to any of you Kabbalists out there, especially when you consider the fact that Malkut is in Kether as Kethers in Malkut. So we know Kether through Malkut, and we know the. The true essence of the kingdom is something we know through Kether. And the true essence of Kether, the infinite divine light and all that is beyond, is something we best know through the kingdom. That's why we need to treat this world better, people. Right? Let's get our shit together. The chief element of A.E.'s mysticism was its universality, and its one goal was spiritual union with the absolute. Yeats found much to dispute in A.E.'s philosophy, He complained that to A.E.'s religious genius, all souls are of equal value. The queen is not more than an apple woman. Yeats, in contrast, was seeking to discover that which distinguished each person from every other person. This is a typical uh, Aristotelian versus Platonic argument here. Um, Yeats being more Aristotelian and A.E. being more Platonic but neither being correct if you know philosophy very well. It's not about that, it's about a dialectic between the two, but let's fuck that, I'm not going to get into that. Furthermore, A.E. was seeking oracles of universal wisdom which would transcend time and nationality. As A.E. said in The Candle of Vision, one of the many books he wrote attempting to explain his vision and inspire others to develop their own talents... Quote, whether they are Syrian, Greek, Egyptian, or Hindu, the writers of the sacred books seem to me as men who had all gazed upon the same august vision and reported of the same divinity. Even in our own Gaelic wonder tales, I often find a vision which is, I think, authentic, and we can, I believe, learn from these voyages to the heaven world more of the geography of the spirit than many mansions in the being of the Father, than we can from the greatest of our sightless philosophers. Yeats would have agreed with A.E. in principle, but his aim was quite opposed to A.E.'s spiritual cosmopolitanism. While A.E.'s goal was spiritual, Yeats's was always artistic. Quote, there can be no great art without nationality, was a view designed to produce high art by wedding content to rock and hill. Some of this, I think, a lot of it had to do with Yeats constantly trying to uh, appeal and win over Maude Gaughan and her nationalism. But also a lot of it was to do with, like, this is something we always forget when it comes to the discussions of nationalism in Yates, is these Irish people were being fucked over so hard you can't even imagine. And the traces of it you could see still in modern-day, north, north, in Belfast, when I was living in West Belfast, man. I was living on the Falls Like that show named after Falls. I was living right at the Falls in Broadway and working at the culture land and doing all, meeting everyone. And, uh, I, I, you know, this stuff's real. These people were really badly treated. I met people with half their faces still blown off because the, they were making a bomb to avenge their sister who got raped and her throat slipped by British soldiers in an alley trying to come home safely one night but didn't have her ID at a checkpoint, so they just murdered her and raped her. Like, this stuff is really, really real, and it's still alive and in people's memories today. So you go into a foreign country, mm-hmm, And you oppress and fucking kill and murder and rape all the people. And then you wonder why they maybe struggle to achieve some sort of national identity. It's not a shock, you know? I mean, in North America, we've done a good job of eradicating the First Nations people so they don't have a chance in hell. But if they had a chance in hell, they'd probably take it. And I don't even need to mention the elephant in the room, which is... hmm. What's going on right now in America and around the world? So, this stuff is, is not abstract. This stuff is as real today as it was for these people then. There's a, 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 a serious stakes involved in the missions, the spiritual missions, and how they manifest in our daily lives. In the appreciation of art of all people, Irish peasants or Indians in their huts are united. However, A.E. felt that the universe should appear as it did to the Indian sage who said that to him who was perfect in meditation, all rivers were sacred as the Ganges and all speech was holy. But as Joseph Hone said, Yeats felt the instinctive repugnance of an artist to the featureless unity sought by A.E. A.E. Yeah, that's this is a classic debate here going on. The featureless cosmopolitan, we're all one sort of uh, you know communist mass in un, uh, without identity, no separation between each other. Like you know, and I mean this is this is the criti- the criti- criticism of China, of course, going on, and to a lesser extent Russia and these other countries. <coughs> but um, at the same time. A.E.'s argument would be against Western cultures also apt in, in certain ways. So again, we see these pillars of Yachin and Boaz, white and black, mercy and severity, struggling against each other, creating the pillar of consciousness in Nechushtan that whips every which way up the paths till it explodes in the lightning flash and recreates the universe all over again. That's my two cents on it anyway. Take it as you will. Yeats felt that such abstraction was bound to encourage in all the arts the spirit of the amateur, while for A.E., Yeats's artistic consciousness seemed harsh, hypercritical, overbearing. A.E., then, unlike Yeats, who always felt A.E.'s waking visions to be higher than his own, was a mystic first and artist second. When he joined the Theosophists, he renounced painting, his greatest talent, to become a clerk, as his will was weak and the arts or any other emotional pursuit could be weakened, could but weaken it further. Yet paint he did, misty, evocative landscapes peopled with figures from dreams, and write he did, poems on the flood of inspiration, seldom revised. These paintings and poems dealt with his peculiar spiritual reality. In them he remembered his past incarnations, recorded visions, and affirmed the divinity of man and the holiness of the earth the universe pointed to God. As Yeats said, with men of this ki- his kind, all is an evocation. Despite these differences in aims, A.E. was one of the first to whom Yeats spoke of his hope, which had come into focus in April-May 1895 for a religion of Ireland. Yeats found that A.E. was able to divine his thoughts. Once, when A.E. had come to visit Lady G- Gregory's estate Cooley Park, he inquired about a white jester whom he had seen wandering about the corridors of a great house. It was a vision of a form Yeats had been associating with the god Angus, and which had been very continuous in his thoughts. No doubt A.E. was intrigued, for in November of 1895, soon after the visit to Cooley, he wrote to Yeats enclosing a first chapter of astral records concerning the Celtic hero, Collins On 6 February 1896 AE wrote In great excitement to report some truths about the Ireland behind the veil AE had discerned the awakening of the ancient fires He was sure that the gods have returned to Erin and have centred themselves in the sacred mountains and blow the fires through the country Several others had already seen these gods in visions And A.E. thought that this presaged a return to the old druidic beliefs. For beliefs in fairy things were increasing and people were hearing the sound of bells from the fairy raths and sounding in the hollows of the mountains. Further, A.E. had been told that, quote, "...though now few, we would soon be many." and that a branch of the school for the revival of the ancient mysteries to teach real things would be formed here soon. Out of Ireland will arise a light to transform many ages and peoples. There is a hurrying of forces and swift things going out, and I believe profoundly that a new avatar is about to appear, and in all spheres the forerunners go before him to prepare. It will be one of the kingly avatars, who is at once once, Ruler of men and magic sage. I had a vision of him some months ago, and I will know him if he appears. The letter closed with a wish to spend more time in Sligo, hunting up old currents, talking over magic, the Celt, and the old country amid the ancient sights of the mysteries. I quote this extraordinary letter at length because of the spiritual authority which it surely imparted to Yeats's scheme. A.E. was, in Yeats's view, a clairvoyant par excellence, and Yeats eagerly sought his help in the Celtic mysteries. So great was Yeats's enthusiasm that late in 1897, A.E. wrote of it to another Celtic mystic, Fiona MacLeod, William Sharp. My friend, Willie Yeats, has just come by me, wrapped in a fairy whirlwind, his mouth speaking great things. He talked much revivifying the Druidic mysteries and vaguely spoke of Scotland, and you. These stirring ideas of his are in such a blaze of light that, but for the inspiration of a presence always full of enthusiasm, I would get no ideas at all from him. Note, in 1933, A.E. still hoped that the Avatar would appear. He published a book, The Avatars, A Futurist Fantasy, New York Macmillan 1933, dedicated to Yeats in which he described two semi-divine beings who had returned to nature in order that the Great Mother could restore their lost likeness in soul and body to the ancestral beauty. In this work, A.E. commented that the mystic paganism of the Celtic poets was not simply a protest directed against mechanical life, but an expression of the soul's desire to live amid its spiritual affinities. In saying that, the very names they use, the names of the ancient gods and heroes, have a power of evocation. A.E. indicated how well he understood Yeats's hope for the Celtic mysteries. On 22nd January 1898, when he reported to A.E. that he was deep in Celtic mysticism and that it was forming an elaborate vision, he stated that his plan to take Maud Gaunt to some country place in Ireland to get, as you do, the forms of the gods and spirits and to get sacred earth for our evocations. Maud had seen a vision of a little temple of the heroes which she proposes to build somewhere in Ireland when, in, when 98 is over and to make the center of our mystical and literary movement. Uh, the the apostrophe 98 reference is, is important, actually. It's, uh, it's The reference to 98 is a political celebration in honor of Wolf Tone And if you don't know who Wolf Tone is, it's a big deal. The Irish revolutionary who died in prison in 1798, 100 years earlier. Maud, of course, put political affairs ahead of literary or religious matters. A.E. wrote to Yeats on 30th August, 1898, warning him perhaps needlessly not to... Forget your own literary work for 98, or even for Celtic mysteries. He noted that 98 was well in its day, and the mysteries are here for five years, or ten more likely, in the future. It was not one of his most accurate prophecies. <laughs> So winding back, Maud had seen a vision of a little temple of heroes which he proposes to build somewhere in Ireland when 98 is over and to make the center of our mystical and literary movement. Yeats expressed the desire to go somewhere where you are so that they could all work together on the mysteries. Yet Yeats' effort to enlist A.E.'s help in formulating the Celtic mystery rituals must not have met with complete success. A.E.'s mysticism was far too cosmopolitan to want to rest very long in one mythology. In a letter dated 3rd April 1897, A.E. complained, I'm afraid it would be a futile task for me to try consciously for the Celtic traditional feeling. A certain spirit of it I have, but I am not Celtic inside, not for many lives. Such a demure from the greatest visionary in all of Ireland must have disappointed Yeats greatly, but he did not give up trying to lure A.E. into his plans. A year later, in late March 1898, Yeats wrote that he had bought O'Curry's manuscript materials and manners and customs, as well as the migration of symbol, to help us over the Celtic order. Then he spoke of a message to number number the people of God, which was an appeal to A.E. to help in that systematization which you so dislike. Clearly, Yeats was enlisting the gods to obtain A.E.'s assistance. (laughs) Hmm, awesome. How successful Yeats was is difficult to assess. A.E. was never a member of the Golden Dawn and apparently did not participate in any of the group vision sessions of 1897 to 1898, which seemed to have formed the basis for understanding the shape and meaning of the gods. A.E. had no need of group sessions to stimulate his third eye, and probably perform better alone anyway. Furthermore, A.E. did not hold with the sort of experimentation in magic which so delighted Yates. He felt that nothing should obscure the prime goal of mystical union with the absolute, which for A.E. meant perfection. Note, in a letter to Madame Blavatsky dated 6 November 1888, A.E. warned prophetically against the almost certain degeneration of any society or sect formed by mortal hands. If mortal, ha- mortal was imperfect, he noted, by way of contrast, by perfect I mean union with the absolute. Nevertheless, Yeats continued to correspond with A.E. about the meanings of visions and symbols. In a letter dated 27 August 1899, date is a question there, actually, Yeats said, If you can call up the white fool... And have the time, I wish you could make a sketch of him, for Dalua seems to be becoming important to us. Angus is the most curious of all the gods. He seems both Hermes and Dionysus. He had some part, perhaps, in all enthusiasm. I think his white fool is going to give me a couple of lines in the shadowy waters. The application of the visions and symbols had shifted. They were now being amalgamated into symbolic literature. In this letter, Yeats makes no mention of Celtic mysteries in connection with the white fool who had first appeared to A.E. at Cooley Park, Park four years before. The influence of A.E., who was himself one of the major figures of the Celtic revival, which is not seen as Celtic mysteries, that's the cultural revival, the Celtic twilight, that was actually happening and quite noticeable in Ireland. Upon Yeats's Celtic mysteries was great, but is so difficult to pinpoint. Yeats felt that A.E. had within him the vast and vague extravagance that lies at the bottom of the Celtic heart. Often, A.E.'s visions are found transmuted and absorbed into the mysteries, and the stories that A.E. gleaned from the peasants who would speak to none but him are found throughout Yeats's work, particularly in the folklore collections. Perhaps AE's effect on Yeats was similar to Mary Battles, but in a far greater degree. The glorious invisible world was real to them. It became real for Yeats also. And that is the end of the dissertation, um, except for the appendices and introduction to the appendices. The conclusion of the appendices I covered and have on this podcast. As an addendum to my PantheaCon lecture in February 2020, that was a great success. And I thank PantheaCon and everyone for being there and all the developments that have happened since then to everyone supporting my work. You can go to my websites and donate and support through a donation button. Just check out hermeticmysteryschool.com, hermeticspiritualdirection.com, or orderofcelticmysteries.com. mahara, ta tusa behintah. And great thanks to Dr. Caligura for putting this work together. For Without it, this would not be possible since there was no way to spend the time necessarily to get access to the documents of the National Library and all these other places to put together this order into creation. And thanks to Eric V. Sisco for sending me the dissertation in the first place several years ago after he attended my many lectures back in the late 90s in the GD.